It is a glorious Monday in Cleveland. Hope everybody's doing well. Hope everybody had a wonderful weekend. I had a, a fast and furious Saturday, and then uh, my body responded by being the laziest you-know-what yesterday, uh, and I used football as a total excuse. Total excuse. I didn't do anything until after the NFC title game went off the air when I kind of just decided to do dishes so I could feel better about what a lazy you-know-what I was yesterday. But today's a wonderful day. We've got to get into the Ken Dorsey stuff. I think there's, on one hand, I feel um, validated with my thought process on the OC search last week. On the other hand, I think there's something that people are missing with the hiring of former Browns quarterback Ken Dorsey. And I will tell you, like I'm finally in that sweet spot of, of aging where I'm old enough to have a guy that was a quarterback when I was in like college-ish high school that now is in a position where he's the offensive coordinator of your favorite team, it's a little bit of a mind meld. If we're just being honest about where that is, we're going to get the Ken Dorsey stuff. Uh, Deshaun Watson's out here recruiting players on his podcast. We've got to get into that, of course, the Cavaliers. Uh, they've got a game tonight. We'll talk a little bit of Cavaliers because I realized that I'm in a very precarious situation with the Cavs. I think everything that we've been talking about with the Cavs have led up to what we're going to talk about with the Cavs later today. So we have a we have a great show. It was a wonderful weekend of football um, for so many reasons. I felt I feel so in, incredibly sad for Lions fans. Like I listen, let's be real honest here, guys. It was that is hand of God stuff. The way that they went from leading the way they did at halftime to falling apart in what can only be described as one of the most disastrous third quarters ever. That is that is God reaching down from the heavens and saying, bleep your couch. All right? That's what happened yesterday. But it's not where I'm going to start. All right? And as I mentioned, we're going to get to the Ken Dorsey stuff. Don't you worry about that. Many a thoughts, many a takes. Want to hear from you guys as well. You guys can always get on uh, the show uh, on the uh, social media side of things. At Nick Wilson says, social media reactions on X brought to you by Scheiben Jewelers, Cleveland's premier jewelry store. You guys, phone number, 216-474-0092. Why not just throw the whole damn thing out? Because I want to start just having a nice moment here. And I got to thank, I really have to thank the Baltimore Ravens. I have to thank the city of Baltimore. I have to thank Zay Flowers and Roquan Smith. And I got to thank Ed Reed. And I got to thank uh, Stavros Halkias, who was wearing that 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 Ravens beak yesterday, looking like a fat-ass Raven on every video, chirping, caw, caw, heading into that game. Oh, my God. I got to thank you because I finally was able to admit last week that I was not over the the Texans lost. I wasn't. I had been in a kind of a funk. And every time we talked about the Browns, I it was tough because on one hand, the players deserve special accommodation for what they did in the regular season and their ability to overcome. I mean, just it, it, we can point it out with the five starting quarterbacks in 18 weeks. That is that is a that is just a symptom of what was an insane season. And for a team that won 11 games, it was as exhausting of an 11-win season as I've ever really been able to put together. And so you you compare that with the early exit with the Texans. And you know, I was at a daddy-daughter dance this weekend in Manaway, and we we're talking about how the most the worst thing is you just you just didn't even show up. You just got your doors blown off you. And so I've been in a funk about it. I have been. I gotta be honest about that. And I feel like I've been able to be more honest here recently. 
that that I've just from a Browns perspective, it just felt like you were where you needed to be, and then you you got one and done in the playoffs in kind of a humiliating way, and I, that stayed with me, and that lingered until yesterday at three thirty. Because, guys, I got to see the Baltimore Ravens, a team that I absolutely loathe, and a town that I think is a bunch of front-running bastards who spent a decade crying about the Ursay family stealing the team only to do arguably a much worse thing by stealing the Browns because you knew what it was like and then you have now you're wearing purple and black and all oh, the flock, all oh, the Ravens flock, flock nation, y'all can go flock yourself today. Because let me just tell you right now, that was a borderline sexual experience yesterday. Watching the Baltimore Ravens crap the bed in the AFC title game. And here's the thing, guys. It starts with their coaching staff. Like Todd Munkin, the former Browns offensive coordinator, who the second they got down, they had a little bit of resistance on the ground from Kansas City, and Baltimore just bailed on the run game. The thing that got them there, Right, and listen, I know Lamar's in a, the the offense with Lamar, it was improved. And and he was he was he was kind of um he was abled in a way that he hadn't previously been in the passing game. And so, oh, you had the fireworks and you had Zay Flowers and he had all this stuff, but but a balanced offense was still what that offense was. And so it starts with the Ravens coaching staff, specifically on the offensive side of the ball, duking the bed in just a hilarious way. But I gotta tell you. What was so enjoyable is watching Kansas City and watching the Chiefs play the Ravens every single step of that game. And it started with the sideline nonsense where they were, you know, Travis Kelsey walks over and starts throwing the tee for the, the kicker for Justin Tucker, where all of a sudden they walk over and, and Kelsey and Mahomes are jawing at Travis, uh, at Justin Tucker because uh, the people in Baltimore love their kicker more than anybody else because, of course, they do. And I got to tell you, that was a mind game that started there. And Kansas City played mind games with Baltimore the rest of the way. It was big brother, little brother stuff. They baited them into every mistake Baltimore made yesterday. They did. And they proved that Baltimore was emotionally soft because they couldn't handle it. From the Travis Kelsey, um, the, the personal foul, and I think it was Roquan Smith, early in the game. From the taunting call by Zay Flowers, and then obviously just a phenomenal play by Legereus Sneed at the goal line to stave off a touchdown. There was one of the best plays I've ever seen defensively with the way, I mean, Zay Flowers was in the end zone. He, w- he was scoring a touchdown at the last second Legereus Sneed stole it. But from Roquan Smith getting the personal foul late in the game, where all they needed to do was go off sides and they win extra. Why? Because they're a cheap-ass organization. They're a bunch of front-running clowns. And they showed it yesterday. Every step of the way, Kansas City was in the grill of Baltimore. And the way that they lost, guys, I'm going to go back on this again. It was as pleasurable as almost any Browns win I've ever had because it was a team that had everything they needed to win a championship. I went into that game fretting. I was at three at three fifteen. I'm sitting down there. I'm watching this game. Actually, that's closer to like two fifty five. But I am just fretting because Baltimore has the best defense they've had in a hot minute, and not just that, but the offense. They're finally unlocking Lamar to the nth degree, to the best possible degree of Lamar. Okay, and Lamar, by the way, 
Lamar's out there. He's balanced. He's he's earning his paycheck, right? And then they went out there and they lost the game. And here's the thing. Like, the, the Ravens defense gave them a chance. But they brought out Ed Reed on the sidelines. They bought out Ray Lewis. They bought out Jonathan Ogden. They had Terrell Suggs. They had Michael Phelps swim in from wherever he is. I didn't even know he still was around. I thought he kind of was just like an 80-year-old guy somewhere because we haven't. he's not relevant anymore. They had everybody. They had Stavros Halkias with a Ravens nose. And then they went out there and they lacked all composure. The number one team in the AFC embarrassed themselves on national television with 50 million football fans and another 15 million uh, Taylor Swift fans watching. It was so friggin' enjoyable. So thank you. Thank you to the city of Baltimore. Thank you to the Baltimore Ravens, you front-running ass clowns. You had the best team you've had in 20, no, in 15 years since you won your last championship. Actually, it's been like 12 years. Math is hard for me. I'm from Cleveland. But the point is, you had your best team, and you went out there, and you beat yourself. Like, all do, listen, Kansas City deserves credit. Kansas City's winning the whole damn thing. I don't know who needs to hear that. I think now that San Francisco won, we can delude ourselves into thinking this is going to be a game. Kansas City has a abysmal secondary, and Pat Mahomes is finally going to be able to pass all over them. All right, the game's decided. It's going to be, they're finally officially a dynasty, according to Keith Britton. You got it. You finally got it. But you know what? At least we can have the illusion that San Francisco versus Kansas City, we, we can at least have the illusion that this is going to be a real game two Sundays from now. But let me tell you, Baltimore, thank you. Thank you for being able to watch the best team in Baltimore in 12 years just flush down the toilet the best chance. And that thing, what was it, 17 to 10? I remember the final score. I don't care because it wasn't that close. Lamar couldn't lead his team from behind. Lamar throwing it a triple coverage with, I mean, I don't and then, oh my God, that was the other thing. Jason Lockenfora, every Ravens fan out there, oh, what are these penalties about? They're, they were a cheap-ass team that kept committing penalties, you dodo. How about being mad about that? Oh my God, guys. So I'm starting the show on an absolute high note because bleep Baltimore, bleep that just fake-ass sports town. Why don't you go steal another NFL team? Maybe we'll get another NFL title. I don't know. And now we get to have the conversation for the next year at least. Why can't Lamar win the big game? Oh, thank you, Baltimore. You made me feel so much better about the way things ended in Cleveland because as humiliating as round one of the NFL playoffs were, nothing tops being the number one seed in all of football. The best team, that's what they had been labeled, the best team in the NFL all season long. And then you poop the bed like that. Just fan friggin' tastic. Oh my God. I wish I could listen to Jason Locken for a cry for his four or five hour show. I don't even know how long his show is. Four or five hours today about the referees. Did the referees uh, spin the ball in the, uh, the, the Chiefs defender's face? Did the referee take every cheap shot known to man? Did the referee get baited into cheap and just stupid penalties? No, no, that'd be the Baltimore Ravens. But here's a little hair tussle, Baltimore. Oh, it was old, it was bad, wiffle wheeze. Oh, my God. Feels so damn good to be alive today.
We've got Ryan O'Halloran of Buffalo News. He's going to be talking Ken Dorsey with us coming up in just about uh, 25 minutes here. I will, I'm will. i going to say he had the opposite viewing experience that I did yesterday as, uh, as Kansas City was a team that beat Buffalo to then have the honor to go beat Baltimore and then get to the Super Bowl. But we'll talk with Ryan about Ken Dorsey, whether the knock on Dorsey is fair or whether he got scapegoated. We got the Pulse with Keith coming up at 340. Brown safety DeAnthony Bell coming up at 4 o'clock. We're going to get into his journey to the NFL. If you guys haven't heard it, he's actually got a really awesome story. We'll also get his thoughts on the aforementioned end of the season. We'll get his thoughts on the defense going to year two of Jim Schwartz. And I would like to point out, I look at the Lions' loss is different than the Ravens' loss yesterday, even though the Lions really blew a game that seemed... Like, it would take a lot of work to lose that game with the way they were up at halftime, where where the momentum was in that game. The reality is it was all execution. It was fumbles. It was little ticky-tack stuff. It was not tackling right. It was every little thing that could go wrong. I actually don't think people realize how how much has to go in to lose that game. And listen, San Francisco made it on every damn play. They did. Congrats to San Francisco for making the plays. But with Baltimore, it was equal parts. Here's Dan Campbell's taking crap today. He shouldn't. Dan Campbell coached that game the same way he coached every other game, whereas the Ravens were the ones who both coaching and execution let him down. And so while we have that, in the midst of the uh, the playoff action yesterday, we did get news the Browns have a new offensive coordinator. It is former uh, Miami quarterback, former Browns quarterback, Although I think we need to establish a new benchmark for former Browns quarterback. Just because you actually played for the Browns doesn't mean you're truly, like in the spirit of it, we got to have like a cutoff, right? There were so many quarterbacks since 1999. I only really want to claim like the top 25% of former Browns quarterbacks as, and then the other ones, they just happen to play for the Browns once. That That's kind of where Ken Dorsey is, but I digress. I think it's interesting to hear the reaction to and I thought the morning show did a good job of covering what has been a negative reaction to Ken Dorsey being named the offensive coordinator and a lot of it centered around he got fired midseason by Buffalo this year Buffalo then went six and one without him and uh, proceeded to go all the way to the second round of the playoffs where they met the buzzsaw uh, as they kind of habitually do against the Chiefs and I think if, and I'm not trying to do I was right radio because it is the worst kind of radio, but I was right um, in that, or rather Ken Dorsey's hiring does prove at least one thought I had last week about the offensive coordinator position. And it, I'd been trying to warn everybody, there's not one name that was going to unite everyone, right? Last year, I know we had some Sean Desai people out there we had some people kind of on the fringes talking about other candidates, but most of us looked at Jim Schwartz and said, yes, of course. He can be the defensive head coach. That's what Kevin Stef- That'll make Kevin Stefanski a better head coach. And by and large, that did happen. And so even though there were like six names in the defensive coordinator search, I really like Gerard Mayo, who since kind of got a guarantee to re- replace Belichick a year later. He replaces Belichick. Uh, Brian Flores had a great year in Minnesota. That was another name out there. But, but Jim Schwartz was the guy by the end of the process that was like, oh, yeah, no duh. That's a great hire. There really wasn't that guy for the Browns offensive coordinator search. Like, I thought it was funny, after Philly hired Kellen Moore, all of a sudden more Browns fans wanted 
Kellen Moore, like there's that that hindsight thing of, oh, how could we let Philly get him? The situation in Philly is a little different. It's probably a guarantee as part of the the move from the Chargers to Philly, whether they say it or not, that Kellen Moore is going to be calling the plays there. He's also familiar with the division. He's familiar with Nick Sirianni having been in Dallas for you know most of his career as a player and as a play caller. That kind of made sense. The problem is Kellen Moore here, even if even if whoever ended up being the OC calls the plays, you're still going to have a head coach with a heavy hand in the creation of the offense and the deployment of the offense. So I didn't even think Kellen Moore was some sort of slam dunk. I mean, he he got run out of Dallas, and that is what happened. He got run out of Dallas. It was a mutual parting of ways in which the Cowboys no longer wanted him to be their offensive play caller, and he said, oh, I don't like that, so now I should leave. That's that's how mutual that was. One side didn't want the relationship to continue, and he simply agreed he had no choice in the matter. But there's nothing that happened with the Chargers last year that would would lead you to believe the Browns missed out. And then you look at Gerard Johnson. Yeah, hypothetically, I like a young mind like that, a, a kid who has a chance to be a, a, a future head coach. Uh, he also has no track record as an offensive coordinator in any way. The, the, this this job, the, the quarterback's coach, is the highest level that he has kind of attained so far. So there's a bigger risk than a guy that's actually used to game planning. So, yeah, Gerard Johnson, that would have been an interesting hire. Brian Johnson, who just got fired in Philly, would have been an interesting hire. He probably would have been the guy I'd be more comfortable with than Ken Dorsey. There was no guy that was risk-free. And so then you have to go to the next level. All right, so there was not one clear guy. And honestly, I think it's the biggest challenge of this coaching cycle is like, yeah, like Pittsburgh. With uh, Arthur Smith, they just the the former Falcons coach. Okay, yeah, Arthur Smith had a great run with uh, Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry, and then he went to Atlanta, where he was the offensive head coach, and the offense was consistently not good enough, despite having Kyle Pitts, Drake London, and Bijan Robinson, and a pretty damn good offensive line out there on the field. It was the offense that failed him in Atlanta, not the defense. Surprisingly enough. So, like, yeah, I think Arthur Smith would, yeah, that might actually, okay, man, maybe that's a good hire for, if if that ends up being the hire for Pittsburgh. But I don't know it's it's fait accompli that he's going to fix Kenny Pickett or fix Mason Rudolph and they'll be in the AFC title game next year. There's no slam dunk, no-brainer hire, whether it was the Browns or anybody else. They're all fighting over guys that were kind of a mixed bag. But I do think, like, here's the thing that I think people missed about Ken Dorsey. And I have my, you know, we'll get into the play calling thing. We'll get into a lot of stuff. And I do, I'm, I am just curious what your guys' reaction is, whether you think this is a good hire by the Browns. Because I think I see why it makes sense for the Browns and why it makes sense for, for Deshaun Watson. And that was always going to have to be whomever they hired. It had to make sense for both of those parties. It doesn't matter that that some Browns fans have a mixed feeling about Deshaun or you know there are some Browns fans that are fatalistic that Deshaun will never be the right guy that or that Deshaun doesn't fit this thing or that Deshaun has been ruined because of everything else or that now Deshaun can't stay healthy there's a myriad of reasons to doubt Deshaun and most of them are fair at this point but like the bigger thing here is 
if you had just hired somebody that Kevin liked that didn't make sense for Deshaun, it would have been a disastrous decision. There is no undoing the $230 million decision you made two years ago. And certainly there's no reason to try and undo it two years in. Next year, we'll see. Context matters. How things go this year, how well they go, him staying healthy, these things matter. Whether it's year four, like some of that's winning, some of that's performance, some of that's health. But like today, you always had to make a decision that made sense for both parties. And from the Brown side of things, yes, Ken Dorsey did get fired in the middle of this last year. There's a healthy amount of evidence to suggest that he was scapegoated, right? Where Sean McDermott was, they were 500 team at the time. They were going into a Kansas City game where if they had lost that Kansas City game, and, and revisionist history actually backs this up, that if you had gone into that uh, Chiefs game and if Kadarius Tony just doesn't line up off sides, the Bills are not in the playoffs this year. So that was a kind of turning point in the Bills season of firing Ken Dorsey. They were also still the number one offense in the NFL in several key categories. And the year previously, they had one of the best offenses in the NFL and Josh Allen had arguably his best season as a professional quarterback. Not with Brian Dable, but with Ken Dorsey. So from the Browns standpoint, you just focus on two years ago instead of this year and say, well, all right, maybe the guy just got scapegoated. And this is the work he did with one of the preeminent, the best quarterbacks in the NFL and Josh Allen, who had this year the turnovers were a problem early in the season, but two years ago, we're talking MVP with Josh Allen. So that's why it makes sense for the Browns. And then you start looking at the other quarterbacks he worked with as a quarterback's coach. He's got play calling experience. He's got experience in a couple different styles, both from what they ran in Kansas City or what they ran in Carolina when he was there and what they ran in Buffalo the last couple of years. So all right, he's got experience in different schemes. He's got experience as a player. Here's why it works for Deshaun. Who is one of Deshaun's mentors? Who is one of Deshaun's best friends in football? It's Cam Newton. And you needed to give Deshaun somebody that he could feel like was a him guy. And so when you've got a guy in Ken Dorsey who Deshaun can call up, Cam Newton, and go, hey, can I trust this guy? And if you've ever heard Cam Newton talk about Ken Dorsey, his, his approval was sky high from when he was his quarterback's coach. He hated to lose him. And there were some machinations, some staff turnover when North Turner took over. That's kind of why uh, Ken went to to Buffalo with Brian Dable. And there's the connection with Sean McDermott and all that stuff. Like, by and large, you've got a hire that is good from the Brown standpoint because you've got a guy that is proven. Even if he got fired this last year. Guys, good offensive coordinators do get fired in the NFL. They're, they're, it's not just as simple as are you good at your job or are you not good at your job? Politics factors into these things more than anything. And Ken Dorsey's numbers, his offensive numbers as a play caller and as an offensive coordinator were more so than anything Kellen Moore had really done in the NFL. So you add that to the fact, and then from the, the Deshaun side of things, you have somebody you can trust. You have somebody that you have a relationship with a third party that can fill you in and that you can build trust in, and that's the toughest – that's the – the, the longest thing that you need to bridge now if you're the Browns are you need to find ways that the trust can grow 
to where you can have the kind of honesty with Deshaun and the Browns that you need to win. Because I didn't get a sense there was a lot of trust. And I'm not, this is not a criticism, by the way. It's a forced marriage. It's an arranged marriage between Kevin Stefanski and Deshaun Watson. There were bound to be some rough edges there. We didn't know they were this rough. We also didn't know the guy couldn't slide and was going to put himself into harm's, danger, or harm's way four times a game with, with some of his uh, lack of business decisions when he makes going headfirst into oncoming traffic to, uh, on offense. But you needed somebody that fit both things. I don't know if Kellen Moore did. I don't know if Kellen Moore and Deshaun have a natural rapport. I don't know if Gerard Johnson in the Browns or Gerard Johnson and Deshaun have some sort of overlap, some sort of relationship there. So do I love the Ken Dorsey hire? Eh, kind of ambivalent to it. I'm getting kind of like, eh. I think there's some good things there. There's some questions that I have. But the number one thing that needed to be answered was, does this make sense for Deshaun and does it make sense from any angle from the Browns? And at least up front, it does seem to fit both of those qualifications. So things like play calling matter, but it's secondary to those first parts of the relationship. Selling Ken Dorsey internally to the organization and selling Ken Dorsey to Deshaun Watson. Things like, well, okay, what scheme are you going to use? Yep, that probably was part of the conversation, but you've already cleared the most important hurdle. He can have buy-in in the organization, he can have buy-in in the locker room, and he can have buy-in with Deshaun. I don't know what more you're going to want from that, considering the other guys had just as many questions as Ken Dorsey. It's fair to wonder whether it's going to work out. Guys, I was going to be worrying that with Gerard Johnson, first-time OC. I was going to be worrying about that with Brian Johnson, who just got fired in Philadelphia, similar story to Ken Dorsey. I was going to be worried about that no matter who they hired as the offensive coordinator because a lot of my doubt isn't about the coordinator. It's about can they figure it out with Deshaun. It has been an interesting couple weeks in Buffalo. Not only did they just uh, have the unfortunate demise again in the divisional round of Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, they also have seen uh, themselves anoint Joe Brady as the full-time play caller, offensive coordinator moving forward, and former OC Ken Dorsey, who was uh, disposed a little more than uh, halfway through the season, which could or could not have led to a 6-1 and one run that led them to the playoffs and the number two seed in the AFC. And to talk about all that news and maybe the Buffalo reaction to what they saw yesterday in the AFC title game. We head out to the North Olmstead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. A welcome on of the Buffalo News, Ryan O'Halloran. Ryan, welcome to the show, sir. Hey, how are we doing today? Good to join you. Uh, doing very well. Appreciate you joining us. I am curious whether or not yesterday Buffalo fans were let down for the second time in as many weeks. Were Buffalo fans rooting against Kansas City in the AFC title game? Not sure who they're rooting for, but they should be discouraged because the way Baltimore played yesterday, um, the Bills would have won that game, like the Chiefs did. And so they got a, the, the, this organization. They're going to remember that game the rest of their lives because that was an opportunity squandered. They would have went into Baltimore having won uh, seven in a row, eight of their last nine. They beat the Ravens in Baltimore last year. So they, you know, this sort of just twists a figurative knife, I would assume. So I have my working theories as somebody who does not cover Buffalo on an every given day. But, but where is the gap? Well, you know, like everybody talks about the gap between Allen and Mahomes, which I think is almost unfair 
to one of the five best quarterbacks in the NFL, Josh Allen. But where is the gap between Buffalo and Kansas City? Well, I think Kansas City's had continuity, offense and defense. So, you know, you sort of they know what they're going to call every game. They know how to adjust. They have a Hall of Fame tight end in Kelsey. And then on defense, they, they have rebuilt that defense on the fly. The Bills' defense got old. Now they're going to have to rebuild it on the fly like Kansas City did. So, um, you know, as far as a gap, I think the Allen Mahomes gap is pretty narrow. Uh, but, you know, you got, it's, it's tough to argue saying there's not a great gap at head coaching. And uh, I thought Andy Reid called a great game here uh, on the road Sunday night. And um, the Bills, once again, lost a one-possession game. All, all seven of their losses this year were by one possession. I mean, you got you have to be better at finishing games. Ryan, we just named Ken Dorsey the off. Well, we I didn't have a, a say in it, but the Browns just named uh, Ken Dorsey as their new offensive coordinator. We're still waiting for the team to confirm that, but all reports say that's what's happening here. Was Ken Dorsey scapegoated in Buffalo this year? Yeah, hundred percent. And you know they never really ran away from that theory. And uh, I mean the uh, the Bills were five and five. Uh, when he was fired after the Monday night game. And, you know, if they wouldn't have had 12 men on the field, Denver would have missed that field goal. The Bills would have been 6-4. and four. You know, who knows what, what Sean McDermott would have made if he would have made a change at the coordinator spot. But, you know, at the time of Ken's firing, uh, they're top 10 in yards, yards per play, points per game, passing, fewest sacks allowed. But they, had, they, did, had, they did hit a rut. And uh, at the time, McDermott thought that, uh, this was the only way to get out of it was to fire Dorsey and promote Joe Brady. You know, the records su- suggest that that did work, but also you did uh, see Josh Allen get unleashed as a runner. They were trying to save him during the first half of the season, I believe, until they needed it. Well, they needed it about two months before they, they, they uh, expected to be in the playoffs. They had to get hot late. That was with Allen running the football. Ryan, was there a significant difference offensively between what they did in 2022 where they had all these top 10 marks for for their offense and what they did in 2023 under Ken Dorsey where they still had top five, top 10 marks across the offensive side of the ball? Yeah, I mean, they still had a ton of turnovers. Uh, I mean, in his 10 games, they had 18 giveaways on offense. When Brady took over, they had only nine in nine games. So maybe he had Josh Allen making better decisions in terms of taking a shorter profit instead of going for the big big strike, and which would be intercepted. But, uh, I mean, you know, I guess I'll, I'll sort of flip it to the other side is, is Brady did have a greater commitment to running it, um, you know, more than 10, 11 carries per game difference. So did And, and then lastly, did, did, did Ken Dorsey, uh, was he over-reliant on uh, Stefan Diggs? Diggs was off to a great start through the first half of the season. Um, should they have gotten other guys involved to spread the ball around to make them more more uh, tough to defend? When Brady came on, Dalton Kincaid emerged, James Cook emerged, and Diggs basically disappeared. So I, I was going to go in a different direction here, but you mentioned the name. Um, we, we had, about uh, three years ago, a bizarre relationship between quarterback and wide receiver, passive-aggressive and somehow still very nasty between then-Brown starting quarterback Baker Mayfield and then, uh, I I guess, alleged star wide receiver Odell Beckham Jr., and it really kind of tore up that 2021 season. I'm just curious because it it seems like there's a lot of noise there. What's the deal between Diggs and Allen? There was no noise this year. Uh, I mean, they put that to bed uh, first day of training camp. 
Um, Diggs was targeted 160 times. He, he cannot whine about not getting opportunities. I had him for seven drops during the season, regular season and playoffs. So he dropped some opportunities, including that, that great pass by Allen in the Kansas City game. You know, he still had 107 catches, but the big plays weren't there. I think that was a combination of scheme and, and also him not getting open. They tried to run bubble screens to Stephon Diggs. doesn't work. He's got to go deep crossers, downfield routes, get it, make the big play. He didn't have a 100-yard game. His last 100-yard game was week six. So uh, that's going to be job number one for Joe Brady and Josh Allen is how to, how to get Diggs going back to a level that he thought he was reaching at midway, the midway point of the season. He's not going to be a 1,500-yard guy anymore. Okay, can he be 1,000? Can he be 1,100, 1,200-yard guy? Ryan O'Halloran of the Buffalo News in the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. To circle back to Dorsey, just one quick time here. I know you mentioned, you know, the the running fits there. Also, you kind of mentioned maybe over-reliance on Stephon Diggs. As a play caller, what, was there any specialty that he was known for other than the two things you mentioned? Uh, you know, the numbers suggest he did a lot of good things well. Uh, that's a cop-out answer. Um <laughs> One thing, one thing is they, they wanted to major in 12 personnel when they drafted Kincaid in the first round to go with Dawson Knox on the field at the same time. Ken really never had a chance to put that in action because Knox got hurt. So what I'm interested to see what he brings to Cleveland is, you know, what, what's his influence on, on in using bigger guys, using an extra offensive lineman, which he did a lot on running, running downs. So that, that would be my stamp. And, you know, but it's going to be impossible to know when you're not the play caller, but, yeah, I think Ken Ken will also do uh, will be beneficial to Deshaun Watson. I mean, when Dorsey got here, Josh Allen was in his second year, so he helped Allen as the quarterback coach every step of the way. So I think that's what was probably attractive to the Browns is is Dorsey's experience playing the position at a high level in college, but also coaching it in the NFL. Ryan, you mentioned the, you mentioned the gap between McDermott and and Andy Reid. That I I would actually agree with you. I think there's a greater gap there than the gap between the perceived gap between Allen and Mahomes. Was there any chance or any talk of Buffalo moving off McDermott after the divisional round, considering all the names that were out there, including Bill Belichick? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there was a chance, but there was talk specifically by me. So, which I was, you know, yelled down from the mountaintops here. Uh, how dare you say that? Well, I did. Um, <laughs> you know, he's going to start this year on the hot seat, and he's going to have some uh, openings on his staff to fill because. Sean McDermott, okay, is he the coach that gets you to the point but can't get you to the top? Or can he adapt and adjust and get this team through to the AFC Championship game, up to the Super Bowl? I mean, this is going to be a huge year for him. And, you know, the thing working in his favor, he reports directly to the owner, just like the general manager does. So, you know, as long as the owner is happy with, um, you know, second-round exits and 11-6 and six records – uh, he'll remain as the coach, and he probably has deserved, uh, you know, deserved some rope, so to speak, going into this season because he has won four straight division championships. But that's not what this organization is measured by anymore. Ryan, there's been so much talk here in Cleveland. You know, the Browns won 11 games. They ended up getting bopped in the first round of the playoffs. And one of the narratives that national people have said about the Browns is. Well, hey, you had a chance this year, and it's only going to get tougher from here in a loaded AFC. 
do, do people in Buffalo feel the same way that like next year it's not a guarantee that you could be in the playoffs given uh, Rogers is going to be healthy and Burrow's going to be healthy and all these quarterbacks are coming back to health? Well, I think it'd be a major disappointment if they're not in the playoffs at all uh, because you have Josh Allen at quarterback and he's remarkably durable. Uh, but the division is the, the the division is up for grabs. I mean, if Rodgers is any kind of form that he was in Green Bay toward the end, and then you see what Miami does. Uh, you know, the, the the you know the Bills were a good matchup for the Dolphins this year, and then they've been a good matchup against Kansas City in the regular season. The team the Bills have had problems problems with Cincinnati. They've had no issue for they've had no answer for them the last couple of years. So. You know, it is a very, it is a, a super ultra competitive conference with great quarterbacks, and you know, it, it's almost you just get in the tournament, and see what happens. If you, and all these, a lot of these teams are good enough to win on the road, just like the Chiefs did the last two weeks. Ryan, given Buffalo's uh, issues with kickers, have just it just reared its head again. Is it too late to put a dome or retractable roof on that Buffalo Stadium, that new one? Yeah, it is too late. I mean, uh, I mean they're going to have to settle for a canopy, so that's going to improve the elements a little bit in terms of the wind. Uh, but uh, I mean, that kick wasn't even close last week, and in his new Tyler Bass's new contract kicks in in 2024. So you know, even if they wanted to make a move, they'd uh, be stuck with him for a little while. But I mean, th- that stadium cannot open soon enough because of the covering it will provide the lack of a call for public shovelers that will be sent out by the team leading into a game. So uh, I got a couple more years left, but I think it'll be a nice venue. Ryan, great stuff, man. Appreciate your time. And uh, Hey, enjoy the much like the Browns here, the bills keep giving. And so just enjoy all that content that falls into your lap every day. Like us. All right. Take care, fellas. I appreciate it. I'll be honest with you when it comes to stylistically, um, Ken has a lot of experience in more of a spread offense as a quarterback's coach because he was uh, Cam's quarterback's coach in Carolina, and that's kind of the the link that I think can help the relationship. And, and Ken Dorsey can kind of be that guy who, because of his familiarity and relationship with Cam, might be able to hit, hit the ground running with Deshaun. And it wouldn't surprise me, by the way, if they had actually had any sort of interaction with each other previously because of that relationship and because Deshaun was playing at Clemson when I'm pretty sure um, uh, Ken was in in Carolina. So what I did hear there was a guy who likes to use extra offensive linemen in the run game, who likes uh, big personnel. That's not what the spread offense is. And so that is going to continue to be the push and pull of the next year to two years to three years with Kevin Stefanski and with um, with Deshaun. And it's not, listen, I love jumbo personnel. I like the, the Kevin Stefanski offense that we've seen the first few years and using an extra offensive lineman and two or three tight ends. Like as long as you have the personnel for it, and it's arguable whether the Browns truly have enough good tight ends to do this consistently. Harrison Bryant's inconsistent. Jordan Aikens does not maybe have the same burst he looked like he had in in Houston. He looks a little slower these days. But, like, if you've got Dawson Knox and, oh, my God, the kid from uh, Utah, Dalton Kincaid, it, it totally makes sense that you would do that. I just don't know it fits with what Deshaun needs. And I think that continues to be 
the thing that will really determine whether this thing is a success or not is one, does Ken Dorsey hit the ground running relationship wise with Deshaun? I think Deshaun needs to feel trust. And I, I think there are things that it's not, it's not the fault of the Browns, by the way. Um, the guy really just hasn't had because of injuries and the suspension time to fix, to figure out that trust with the Browns. Cause you just you, trust is earned over time and trust is earned when you're on the field and trust is earned when you can develop something together. And I think when, when you say stuff like that, Browns fans get a little agity because they, well, I don't think Deshaun has earned that. It doesn't matter whether you or I think he's earned that. $230 million contract says he has. The, the previous play in the NFL where everybody knows that when Deshaun is his best, this is what it looks like. The fact he has not looked like that yet, that, that tells you you got to get there. And so I just think it's interesting. Like I think I think the fit is a really interesting fit with Ken Dorsey. And schematically, his ability to adapt to what you need to do with Deshaun is going to make or break not just Ken Dorsey. It might make or break Kevin Stefanski's second half of his run here in Cleveland because you have a little bit of a grace period having just won 11 games. But it's the NFL. Like, we get this idea that guys have four or five years of stability and continuity and power or time. Time is the one thing you never have enough of in the NFL. Just don't. I, I've, I mean, how many times did Jimmy Haslam promise um, with a contract a head coach a four- or five-year run and the guy got fired two years in? I saw it with Dave Tepper in Carolina. Dave Tepper gave Matt Rule a seven-year deal and balked after two and a quarter years. Uh, he just gave, uh, what's his uh, face, Dave Canales, a, a five-year, six-year contract, okay? Those mean nothing. Contracts mean literally nothing to billionaires, Mac. Carolina has three head coaches that they're paying on the books this year between, uh, between Matt Rule, Frank Reich, and Canales as well. And I think they – I think they – start coming off the books in 2026. I think is the earliest before Dave Tepper finally stops paying them that kind of money. But to me, this decision comes down to whether or not you think he was the number one choice or whether you think he got scapegoated in Buffalo. Because I, I, And I thought the morning show did a great job talking about, well, was he the number one choice of the Browns? And I think, I think honestly, sometimes we overreact to that. I, I think, I think, because here's the thing. I think it's a moving target. I think you can go into a search having three guys you really liked or three guys you really believed in, and then you meet those guys, and either your priorities don't line up, your visions don't line up, or, quite frankly, they want something you're not willing to give. And so, like, if Ken – because I think the supposition was Kellen Moore was the number one choice. I don't know why Kellen Moore would be the number one choice. I don't think Kellen Moore has done anything – in his NFL career to make you believe he can do, like he deserves that kind of shot calling going on his third offensive coordinator job in three years. But like if Kellen Moore came to you and said, yeah, I'm going to need to be the offensive coordinator and hard lines you for it, then then honestly, I don't think, I don't think he's in a position to hardline anyone. I think good organizations dictate the terms and then find the guy that works that terms. And listen, Dorsey still might end up being the play caller. We're going to know that as this goes on. 
But, like, the idea that Ken might not have been the number one, I don't really care about that. Because there have been times where the third choice, like going into the Pittsburgh job with uh, with that Mike Tomlin ended up getting, it was Ken Wisenhunt's job to lose. And then Russ Grimm apparently overtook Ken Wisenhunt. And then apparently at the end, Mike Tomlin walked into the room and stole the job. Was Mike Tomlin the first choice? Or was he the guy that was the Rooney Rule candidate that ended up taking the job because he was that impressive? Can you call him the number one choice? That's not who they went into the search intending to hire. And that and and my point is that's a very specific job to point out, but guys, that happens all the time in the NFL. We're used to it being Mike Pettin was your eighth choice, and oh, Mike Pettin was fired in two years. Plenty of good organizations don't get their number one choice or realize their number one choice isn't their number one choice. I think it's a much bigger deal that Ken Dorsey got scapegoated. I think in the NFL, there there's a myriad of reasons guys get fired. And when a guy, when a good coach gets scapegoated and you can quote unquote luck your way into leveling up at the offensive coordinator job, and it takes luck, like to hire a guy who ends up being better than the guy you just fired when it seems like there were multiple reasons why Alex Van Pelt got fired and had to do with the Deshaun side of things and fitting Deshaun, there's a risk when you move on. We don't, you don't always hire the better guy. So if he did get if Ken Dorsey if Ken Dorsey ran a good offense in Buffalo and this was simply a move that Sean McDermott could make to try and save his own ass, which by the way it worked. They went six and one. They got the number two seed in the AFC. It worked out okay for them. He's a good coach. I don't give a damn whether whether or not he was the number one choice. And honestly, I think it just kind of got lucky that a good franchise scapegoated a good coach. Now is where I kind of make fun of Ken. I would like to point out this tweet that I saw today, driving in today, because I was I was hearing the morning show, and I thought they did a great job at breaking down the Ken Dorsey hiring. And so now's the part where I make fun of Ken for his take, because I think I think Ken rode the fence a little bit. Uh, on, not, on the, not on the air this morning. I didn't hear that so much, but I, I saw it on social media. And instead of just copy and pasting this, because uh, usually uh, well, I like to troll Ken by copying and pasting one of his more pandery tweets and then I'll just tweet it like it's my own tweet and see if anybody recognizes. I've done that like six times now. Only once has everybody caught on. This will not be one because I could not. I Ken tweeted this morning at Ken Carmen, the king of Cleveland, by the way, saying weird morning about the hiring of Ken Dorsey. I'd be fine for Kevin Stefanski to oversee everything and have Dorsey call the plays, but I don't demand it. I'd be fine with Kevin Dorsey. All right, sorry. Uh, Kevin Stefanski still calling the plays. Seems a lot of people agree with that. Which one? You said two very different things there. And then said a lot of people agree with that. This would be like, you know, the sky is blue, but I could also see if the sky was green. And a lot of people agree with that. I think Ken has a future in politics because this felt like, you know, Lamar Jackson could win the big game, but he hasn't won it yet. And people don't like that. Okay. All right. All right. So we're kind of just riding the fence there. All right. So I just, I just wanted to point out that he didn't really give us whether he thinks Kevin should call the plays or whether John, uh, John Dorsey, yeah, that, that did that had to happen when I was being a smart ass.
or whether Ken Dorsey should call the plays. I just thought that was very interesting. 216-474-0092. Would you be okay if Kevin Stefanski oversaw everything and have Dorsey still call the plays? And also, would you be okay with Kevin Stefanski still calling the plays? Those are two very different things, by the way, just so you know. Jerry, welcome to the show, Jerry. Hey, uh, Nick, how are you? I'm doing well, buddy. Welcome to the show. Well, I was going to comment on your opening comments on the Ravens very briefly, but first of all, yes, I think it will be a good hire, but we, we all have to realize now that uh, 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 our quarterback, uh, Sean, is still an unknown quantity, and I think that's what the front office is trying to deal with in talking about Flacco or whoever to back him up. And, uh, you know, it just remains to see how Watson is going to open up uh, the season. Is he going to, is he just going to like roll through five wins in a row and tear everybody up or is his arm still there? Am I right on this? Um, Yeah. I mean, I think uh, the Browns have been pretty confident that there's not going to be any residual issues with the Sean shoulder. And him being healthy week one, and honestly, him being healthy in camp is going to be crucial to them being able to be who they need to be week one. Also, uh, I am, as you are, I'm elated that the the Baltimore Browns, as I like to call them, and they would have been if the NFL had gotten their way, uh, 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 we can celebrate the fact that they went down in flames. I called a Baltimore station this morning, FM station, talk, talking about, oh, uh, this and that, and the, uh, uh, the the Ravens should have done this and that, and, and when they knew I was from Cleveland, and he said, well, you've got no reason to gloat. You lost the team. Your mayor lost the team. The county lost the team because you tried to screw Modell. I said, you don't know what you're talking about. Ursay did the same thing to you, and what were you doing then? You were screaming and yelling when he stuck out of town in the middle of the night. And you think you can get away? If it was up to the NFL and uh, the Maryland Sports Commission, there would no, be no Cleveland Browns today. But uh, Art Modell was so stupid, he didn't realize his lease would not allow him to move. And the NFL was forced to bring the Browns back. They didn't know that. It was all politics. Everybody was against Modell. They don't know what they're talking about. Well, yeah, that's because they're a bunch of team-stealing, front-running jagaloons. Jerry, we got to run, buddy. Yeah, there's nothing better. that. Like, if that's all you have is, well, we took your team, and then you proceeded to lose to the Kansas City Chiefs in the AFC title game while having Ed Reed and the most famous people you got. All right, you're Baltimore, right? You got crab cakes, right? You're supposed to be, you're, you're the uh, East Coast, you're part of the East Coast Illuminati. And the best you can do is a, an Olympian nobody's thought of in a decade in Michael Phelps and some fat-ass third-rate comedian who looked like a rat with a, with a raven's nose on the sidelines in Stavros, whatever the hell his name is. I will tell you, it is a beautiful day in Cleveland when Baltimore burns out in the playoffs. Guys, I don't talk about people that I hate. All right. You'll notice I talk smack about every other show here because I love every other show here. When I don't like somebody, 
I don't talk about him because I can't control myself. All right? Like, I think you guys might you might have picked up by now. When I start taking a shot at somebody, I can't stop myself. So it's the uh it's the the fat ass in the candy store idea of I know that I can stop myself to some degree with Ken and Anthony, with Baskin and Phelps, with JP, because at the core there, I love everybody's show and I listen to everybody's show. I am I probably listen to as much of the station as anybody else. So if you really want to listen for something, listen to people I don't talk about, and you're probably going to understand really quickly whom I don't like. The tiger got out of the cage there. <laughs> so no, just just for everybody. No, I was making fun of Ken, although I really wanted to have Mac come back um, with Ken Enough from the Barbie soundtrack, or uh, what is it? I'm just Ken. I really want it, but I couldn't do it because I thought that for some reason that felt over the line with Ken. Like, it's one thing to call him out for pandering. It's one thing to call him out for riding the fence. But then coming back with a song from Barbie, Ken's Ken's kind of a prideful man. I feel like that would have been too much. Now, uh, as we did just have the conference title rounds, I, I had a few observations from yesterday. And so we're going to jump around just a little bit here because there are things that I wrote down throughout the course of yesterday's games, including the number one thing that I feel like I've learned or that we should have learned from this last weekend. There is going to be a conversation at some point in the future, not now, whether Pat Mahomes can overtake Tom Brady. There's going to be a conversation potentially about Andy Reid, if Andy continues coaching after this year and if they win the Super Bowl and all that, about Andy Reid catching Bill Belichick as the GOAT. And those conversations really need another five years to kind of breathe so we can see what more Pat Mahomes does, what more Andy Reid does as a head coach. That being said, Travis Kelsey and Pat Mahomes officially have caught. I don't know. They've surpassed them. They've officially caught Brady and Gronk as the GOAT tight end quarterback combo. Because if we remember, you know, Gronk was really part of the second run, that second, uh, the the trio of championships there in, in New England. And obviously they won one together in Tampa Bay as well. But watching Mahomes and Kelsey, that's like 90% of the Kansas City offense right now. And granted, this this team can actually run better than they have been able to run in quite quite. But like that, uh, the the uh, the conversion where Mahomes had like five minutes of uh, five seconds of running around, and then through like a just dangerous, just kind of dying quail pass, and Travis Kelsey leapt to get the conversion and make what was an all time great catch. That play to me. I mean, and not just that. I mean, Kelsey, the throw to Kelsey in the end zone for the first touchdown where he had Kyle Hamilton all over him and Kelsey was just kind of falling back and Mahomes put it right into his lap, the one place Kyle Hamilton wouldn't be able to defend. I am running out of superlatives to talk about how great Kelsey and Mahomes together are. Kelsey before Mahomes was great. He wasn't this level. There is an otherworldly connection between those two guys that absolutely reminds me of Brady and Gronk. And we, Brady is the GOAT, all right? Until proven otherwise, Brady, uh, Brady is the GOAT. But I think Mahomes and, and Kelsey together are at or maybe even past where uh, Brady and Gronk were as a connection. Because remember, like the last, last like three years, Gronk wasn't Gronk. 
Last three years, Gronk was more of a left tackle who, yes, he made plays in space. He was still a very good player. He wasn't the guy that he was at the very pinnacle of what he's doing. Travis Kelsey is, like, yesterday proved, guys, there's no there's no decline. Maybe there was in October. Maybe he was having a bad month. There's no decline. Look at the plays that Travis Kelsey made yesterday. And the guy's like 33, 34 years old. People are now saying he should retire because he's that old. <laughs> he's been that good for that long. Uh, another thing uh, from, from this weekend, uh, Brock Purdy is the luckiest man on the planet. Brock Purdy was easily the worst quarterback on this weekend. He got, ba- I don't want to say bailed out, but he got bailed out. Let's just say that by an all-time performance of just completely falling apart in Detroit. And he did not make a lot of throws. He did not make a lot of plays. Like, it was Christian McCaffrey. Debo made a couple nice plays. Like, you can count the good plays Brock made in and of himself on 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 one hand. You put anybody else in that San Francisco situation right now. You put Lamar there. Uh, the 49ers win the Super Bowl relatively easily. You put Jared Goff in that situation, I think the 49ers have a better chance at winning a Super Bowl. You put um, Joe Flacco in that situation, I think San Francisco has a better chance of winning a Super Bowl. And it's not that Brock Purdy is awful. He's just not very good. He's not awful. Like he's, I think he still is a starting quarterback, that's funny. After the 49ers won the game against uh, Detroit, there are people circulating on Instagram the Nick Sa- or the the Brock Purdy quote on what Nick Saban told him when Brock Purdy went to go to Alabama on a visit coming out of high school, and it was something to the I'm going to butcher the paraphrasing of this, but it was something akin to um, below average size, uh, your arm is whatever, and your accuracy is average. I don't know how you see anything other than that with Brock Purdy. I and uh, this is I'm gonna do the thing that I don't generally do because I love to watch let games play out before I put my foot in my mouth. I don't think Brock Purdy has a chance of winning the Super Bowl. Save that one, Keith. Save that one because in in two weeks from now it could look like the biggest a hole on the planet. I think Brock Purdy is the personification of average at quarterback. And I think if they keep him going forward, it makes financial sense to keep him. But if they keep him going forward, I don't think they're ever winning a Super Bowl with Brock Purdy. I think it will take everybody around them having games of their life to win with Brock Purdy because he is just average as you know what. 216-474-0092. What were your takeaways from this weekend in the conference title rounds here? We were also talking about uh, the Ken Dorsey hire. We've got more to get on the play calling side of things. We got more to get into Deshaun Watson. Uh, seemingly, maybe starting to try and get people here in Cleveland to go with him. Let's go with Brandon, real quick, buddy. What you got for us? So first things first, I completely agree with you about Brock Purdy. I think he could eventually be relegated to a backup role and even have a shot at winning a, a Super Bowl is unreal. But I wanted to comment on. The front office kind of doubling down on the Deshaun Watson investment. It's like you you won a Rari and you you got a vet, but you know it, it's a lemon. You still have to keep investing in it. So I think having as much you know given to him as possible 
gives them also, and I'm not saying this, but a way out to say, hey, we gave Deshaun Watson everything he needed. We gave him opportunities. We gave him a, a, an OC that he had, you know, buy-in on. We, we even tried to, to kick around. I mean, and you said do this or not, I, I don't know, but even having Ken Dorsey call plays. You know, it, I'm sure it's going to be kicked around in the front office. I mean, Stefanski, I think, had a great season with what he was dealt with, you know, having five different starting quarterbacks. Obviously, we all think, you know, he should be the coach of the year for his play calling and kind of pandering to what was best in, in the given situation. But you, you have to double down on the Sean Watson thing, and I think they are with this signing. I think Helen Moore and him are exactly the same. I mean, I don't think one is better than the other. I think they both have – you know, great features and bad features, like you were saying before, it's not necessarily a bad move to get either one of them. But when you have a little bit more buy-in from Deshaun Watson, you're saying, Deshaun, we've given you everything you need. You now have to go out and prove that you are the quarterback that we, we signed up for. And I think that is a huge part of what this, this signing was. Brandon, appreciate you, buddy. Thank you very much. I think there's something to be said about doing everything you can to try and make the trade work. Because at some point, you might get to a point with Deshaun where the obvious to everybody is it's not going to work out. And the 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 mo- actually, the least you can do is go in, I mean, all in on every single thing. That's play caller. That's putting the talent around him. That is making sure that he's in a spot where it's not all on him to win every single game. Everything. And I think the Browns are doing that. It it feels like they're doing that by, you know, and not incremental, but a little bit every year they're trying something different. So I don't know if it'll work, but I think, like, again, if if you think Dorsey can build the offense that is going to bring out the best with Deshaun, you also have to – Andrew Barry's got to do his job. His teammates got to do his job, like – I don't think it's just as simple as, well, just roll the ball out there and Deshaun will figure it out. I, I think that would be a dangerous tactic to take. So getting back to what I learned from the AFC title game, man, Ken responded to me on social media, by the way. I think I might have swung at the hornet's nest there. Taking shots. All right, Ken. There we go. You know, I'm going to read it right now. He quote tweeted me and uh, said, I'd rather be measured than blurt something out and have my producer smoke me in the argument for 40 minutes every day, but that's just me. I believe what he's saying is, if I don't have an opinion, no one can criticize me. I think that's the subtext of his rebuttal. Let's see how it plays out there, Pepper. Now, with that being said, uh, one other thought I had on the conference title round there is Dan Campbell is who he is. Uh, Detroit didn't lose because of Dan Campbell. I I probably would have tried to go for three uh, when they went for it on fourth down late in that game uh, to tie the game up or to put yourself in a better position. That's not who Dan Campbell is. Like Dan Campbell lost that game the same way he won a bunch of games this year and also lost a few, was which was that he trusts his, his guys. And this was a guy who went for it on fourth down went for it on fourth down 43% of the time this year. And the the Reynolds kid had the first down. He just dropped it. As a matter of fact, if you look at every single thing that happened in the third quarter, it was players not executing. It was Gibbs fumbling. It was 
this mistake. It was that mistake. It was Jared Goff on the the other fourth down where he didn't set his feet when he threw the ball and he kind of threw a dying quail. Like, Dan Campbell's not why they lost that. Did Ben Johnson turtle a little bit? Yeah, maybe. But Dan, Dan Campbell lost that game the way he won every other game. I don't see how you can end up bashing that guy when he was just staying true to his form. We're actually pretty blessed right now to head out to the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline and welcome on Brown Safety, DeAnthony Bell. DeAnthony, welcome to the show, sir. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. One, welcome to the show. I got to ask you, like, you know, you guys uh, you guys go out in the first round of the playoffs. Is it Was it tough, or have you been able to watch any of the other rounds of the playoffs, or is that still too fresh for you coming off the loss? <laughs> Honestly, uh, I, I've watched like bits and pieces because my family are big football fans, so they love watching the games. But as far as sitting down watching the whole game, I haven't done it just yet. So I actually wanted to get to your story before we get into anything with the Browns because I don't know Browns fans realize what an awesome story and in the journey that you you went on. You know, you were a rookie last year, 25, 26-year-old rookie in the NFL and, right. and, you know, you, you come out of high school, I think, in 2014, and then you go – yep. 2015. Can you walk us through kind of your journey in college and kind of the long and winding road to the NFL? Uh, well, yes. First, uh, 2015, I left and I went to a D2 school in uh, at Albany State. At the time, it was uh, one of the only schools I can get in with my test scores. And then uh, I ended up getting another call from a junior college that wanted me to come play safety. You know, I had went to Albany State as a receiver, but I got a call from uh, Iowa Central that wanted me to play safety, and they was like they needed a safety at the time. That was uh, the year of 2016, the beginning of 2016. And I went there, played a season, and then I realized, like, how much it actually cost to, like, you know, go out of, go to school. Eight. And um, I realized that I, I couldn't afford it, so I came back home. And I uh, worked for my dad in uh in tw- in twenty seventeen twenty seventeen, and I ended up in getting another offer from Butler Community College around twenty eighteen, and they gave me an opportunity that they'll pay for the school for me and let me come play football. So that was kind of like a turning point in my life, and I, I appreciate those guys, Coach Abbott, you know, uh, Coach Schaffner, that gave me that opportunity to come play at Butler Community College, and then from there. Uh, of, uh, due to my timeline, I couldn't go D1. You know, I had a couple of D1 offers from JUCO, but I couldn't go due to the timeline of the schools that I had been to. So I ended up choosing to go to another D2, which was uh, West Florida University, and uh, that, that turned out good. I ended up winning the national championship my first year, and, you know, I, I got a chance to make it to the league from there. So I'm curious, man. I mean, that's that's a long and winding road. Like, I've said that right. twice now, but that's – it's a hell of a journey. Like, how many times did you think, "All right, that's it. That was a, that was fun. I, I love ball, but maybe I'm just not going to get a chance to take this thing to the next level." Uh, you know, it, it was a couple times I kind of was like, "Hey, man, you know, uh, I, I would call my mom and be like, man, hey, it's kind of, it's getting kind of rough. I don't know if I can keep going.'" And she like, you know, it, you wouldn't keep getting. She would she would tell me she like, you know, you wouldn't keep getting these opportunities if it wasn't if it wasn't meant for you. So. She kind of was my my backbone that that helped me kept going. You know, she was like, "Hey, the opportunities keep being put in front of you because you have an opportunity, you have a chance." So, I stuck with her word and grinded it out. When did it turn the corner for you? When when did it when did it lock in for you that this could be not only did you lock it at West Florida and you're having success as a team, but that you could maybe take it farther than than college? 
Well, it was after um, that COVID year. You know, COVID year had happened, and we didn't have a season. Uh, our school didn't have a season. But after that year, a lot of teams started, like, coming by, talking to me, watching film with me, and just, just you know, showing interest. And I was like, oh, dang, maybe I got a shot coming into that next season. And throughout that season, I was still talking to a lot of recruiting recruiting team guys. So I felt, I felt a big turning point at that point uh, going into my uh, senior season. Brown safety, DeAnthony Bell on the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. Now, uh, this last year was your second year here in the NFL. I'm just curious. You know, you were you were kind of a special teams guy two years ago. You know, you, you saw some time in the field there, but it, this year it felt like we got to see a lot more of you. You were making a lot more plays. I'm just curious. What was the difference for you, year one of the NFL, to this last year? Oh, well, I think it was just an experience thing. You know, uh, getting used to the game, getting used to the flow of the game, the speed of the game. Uh, the strength of the players and everybody being great players that you play, you know. So just getting used to the system and just getting used to being in the NFL. And, you know, I had great guys in the room like uh, Rodney McLeod, Du Harmon, uh, you know, Warren Thornhill, Grant Delpley, all those guys, you know, we, we look at each other as brothers. And just, just sitting behind those guys and learning a lot of information about the game, uh, which, you know, Rodney McLeod on year, what, 12, 13, and – do Harmon on year 11, just ha- having those experienced guys in the room telling me what they've seen over the years just kind of helped me elevate my game. So when you pick those guys' brains, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, you lose Rodney, who is, you know, kind of one of the quarterbacks of the defense, and then somehow you pick up Deron Harmon, who's, you know, won Super Bowls, uh, right. and, and you get him off the practice squad. I'm curious, like, what do you rely on those guys for? What do you pick their brain about when it comes time to just try and get yourself better? Um, well, personally, uh, I, b- before Rodney got hurt at the beginning of the year, me and him would still watch film uh, throughout the week on every team that we were playing. So we would constantly get together after all of our regular meetings and me and him would watch film. And I would just kind of like, you know, ask him like, hey, what what do you watch first when you first cut on the film? And what tips are you looking for? Or what are you looking for on first and second down? What are you looking for on third down? So it started off like that. And then when I got Du Harmon, that just, you know, it just elevated even more because he would, me and him would text, you know, throughout the night, 11, 10 p.m., 11 p.m., and he's like, hey, you know, if you watch this formation or if you look at this formation, you can see uh, this is a run play and this is a pass play. So having those two guys was an amazing blessing to my life. Anthony, I got to ask you, so much of the talk on defense, and, 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 and it's for a reason, but is the pass rush. And even in the, in the secondary it's the the trio of great cornerbacks you have, and people kind of were curious about what what you safeties could do. You guys internalize right. that. You guys you guys add that fuel to the fire that people kind of doubted the safeties room this year. Yeah, we we talked about that almost every before every game. We were like, hey man, look, every we the question mark. We the question mark on the defense right now. So we feel like we had to step up and, and show people that hey, it ain't no question mark on our defense. Everybody is great. Everybody is good. Everybody can play. So. When I got my opportunity, you know, those guys that came up to me, they're like, hey, bro, there's still no question mark for us. Like, you have to step in and play the role better than we played it. So let's continue continue to uh, continue to play like we played. So it just continued throughout the room. But we talked about it every week. So you got Thornhill. He's established. Delpit takes a huge step this year. You and Ronnie Hickman take your own steps. I'm just curious. Do you guys think you went from – the question mark to now going into next year is a true strong point of this defense? 
Um, honestly, I, I didn't even look at it uh, that way. I didn't look at it as uh, we would possibly be, be the strong point. I kind of just looked at it as, hey, let's build off of what we were. Yeah, we were the question mark, and we showed that we can play, but now let's build off of showing what we can do to helping the whole team show what we can do as, as far as the whole team. So that, that, that's kind of our goal. D'Anthony Bell, uh, Brown Safety on the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. Um, have you gotten over the loss to the Texans yet? No, I haven't. I haven't. You know, hearing about people playing football, I wish I was still playing football. So, you know, it, it, it would have been a huge, huge accomplishment to make it to, you know, the championship game and the the Super Bowl game as well. So, I don't think I got all the way over it yet, but I'm definitely looking forward to uh, what we did. I'm thankful for what we did this year and looking forward to what we can do next year. You know, it's so interesting, DeAnthony, how this team just overcame, overcame. Nothing really stopped you guys in the regular season. And maybe it was the fact that it was the first playoff game, right? That was the first playoff game to be played. So if you lose that game, you're going to feel like you had the, the shortest stint in the playoffs. I'm just curious, like, when you look at, at how things went, is there a moment? What was the moment where it felt like that game got out of hand for you guys, where it felt like you weren't going to be able to get back in? Um, well, I, can't, I, I think, I think uh, you know, they had their first uh, pick six, and I think kind of after the second pick six, the crowd went crazy, and they, they kind of had like a, a momentum standpoint at that point. And I was like, you know, dang, you know, it, it might get away from us, but. We we always feel like we have a chance, so we were still out there fighting. Everybody was still fighting, cheering each other on, you know, encouraging each other. So we always feel like we got a fighting chance. But at one point, you know, they they had the momentum. You know, they played a great game. They they prepare well, and they, they're they're a great team. So we we did our we we didn't play our best game, but you know, hopefully we'll we'll, we'll get a chance to redeem that next year. D'Anthony, one of the big talking points on the defense is just how. I mean, just stifling is the best word defensively at home. And then you went on the road, and there were some times where you just weren't at that same level. It, what was the difference between you guys at home this year and you guys on the road defensively? Uh, I honestly, I honestly don't think it was like just too much difference. But I think you know, of course, at home we feed off that home crowd. We feed off that dog pound. You know, uh, the crowd going crazy, you know, hearing the barks in the stadium, you know, it, it turns our guys up. So at some point at uh, into December, we kind of had to show that even on the road that we have to engage the crowd that we do have there, you know, because the Brown fans tra travel well. So we had to, to engage those, that the people that we had there and try to silence the home crowd. So during the December or the end of the year, that's, that's kind of like the, the, the plan that we were going for, like, hey, when we make plays, we got to celebrate like we're at home. We got to make people feel like, hey, this is our field. So we just try to do that at the best of our ability. I'll be honest with you, DeAnthony. One of the narratives that irritates me about the Browns next year is that everybody, all these uh, national ass clowns come out and they say things like, oh, it's going to be tougher to win next year as if it's ever easy to win in the NFL. But I am curious right. – like, how do you avoid taking a step back next year as guys like Rodgers come back into the fold, Joe Burrow in your own division come back in the fold? How do you build on this instead of maybe taking that step back? Um, I think we just do the same thing that we did this year. You know, we just focus on us. Uh, all, all, all year we talked about, hey, it's about us and it's about what we do. You know, and then a, a couple of times we'll say, hey, we are the players that they have to stop. We have players that they have to stop as well. 
So just gaining on the defense and gaining as brothers and, and, and you know, building that chemistry for the guys that are coming back and um, all of us that are coming together, I think that Greenbrier trip really helped us a lot. You know, it, it bonded a lot of guys as brothers. It gave us time to all be together and bond together. So just building on that same same thing that we started off last year, hey, it's about us. If we do our job, we win. So just focusing on doing our job better than we did last year. It must have been a really uh, like really good trip for you guys because you guys have said more nice things about West Virginia and hanging out in West Virginia than I've ever heard before <laughs> in my life. Right. Um, so I did want to ask you, you know, I asked about the team kind of side of things. Uh, for you, like you're going into year three here, um, you know, football careers don't last forever. What? Where, where's your focus heading into year three of your NFL career? Uh, my focus is to, to do the same thing that I've been saying the uh, last two years, you know, uh, do my part as, as, a, as a, uh, a teammate and help my team win. Uh, all I can do is, you know, do what they ask me to do and try to do my the best of my ability is my job. So wherever they put me in, wherever I end up, you know, being uh, as of last year, it was having to come in at safety and play safety and try to help us win games. And before that, the year one, it was being a special teams guy and trying to make plays on special teams to help us win. So just doing my part, just trying to help the team win, being a team player. All right. So last year, Deshaun took the offensive guys to Puerto Rico. You going to try and board the plane? You going to try and get on that wherever he takes them this year? <laughs> well, we, we've kind of been sending a, sending a trip right now, trying to get it all together. You know, Grant Delvin, shout out to him, trying to get us all together to go on a DB trip, you know, to build some more bonding as teammates. Where are you guys going? Uh, we're not sure yet. That's what we're still trying to plan it. You know, Valentine's Day coming up, so we don't want to do it around that time. So probably, hopefully, the week after that, we'll start trying to get something together and all get together and go out of, go out of the country somewhere. But what's on the table? Are we thinking? Are we thinking somewhere? Are we going like Italy? Or are we going maybe somewhere in South America? Somewhere probably South America for sure. All right. Well, if you need like a fat guy to hang out and just like run interference for you, I can't. I don't have really any skills. I'm not a defensive back, but I, I, I'm, I just want to let you guys know. As long as you cover the expenses, I will go with you. <laughs> no, nah, you, you're invited, dude. You're invited for sure. <laughs> uh, outside of that, man, what's the off season plans? How do you spend your time? Uh, most of the time, I just spend my time with my family. You know, I just spend my time with family. Uh, I'm back in Georgia now, so. I've just been here uh, chopping it up with my family, being with my people, seeing my grandmother, my mom, my dad, and my nieces and nephews, sisters and brothers. So I'm just grateful to, to, to be around them and, and feel feel at home. Well, keep doing all the right stuff that's led you from your, your great journey here to the, the NFL. We're excited to see what you have for year three. We're excited to see what you guys have in store uh, next fall. And uh, seriously, man, thank you for your time. You're very generous, and I wish you the best of luck this offseason. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. D'Anthony Bell there, Brown Safety. You know, some dudes you can just tell are just good dudes. And, you know, Anthony just has a nice personality. I just – I hadn't really heard him uh, interviewed a lot. I just – I think he might have picked up a fan there. I just really like kind of the way he talks about stuff, the way he kind of thinks about stuff. But I think that there was a line in there that I think is it, – it's about us. And I think that is – you know, it was in relation to a question about, like, how do you avoid taking a step back – next year and I do think like all I've ever heard is is jabronis like uh Mike Florio talk about well you know um is going to be tough next year yeah I mean that's the AFC almost any given year when you play in the AFC North it's going to be tough all right I mean 
up until the Browns got good, there were usually three good teams in the AFC every year. And with the Browns being a good organization, seemingly again, like, yeah, every year it's going to be a dogfight to get in the playoffs. Okay, go focus on what you got to focus on. And it's funny because we're going to play a piece of, of sound here from Deshaun Watson. And it what Deshaun was talking about, and like some of this is tongue-in-cheek that we're going to play here, but it like it got me thinking about where the Browns are in their build because you've got a $230 million quarterback. You've got decisions you've got to make on Nick Chubb, and you've got to make a decision on uh, Amari Cooper and whether to extend him or let him play out the contract. And the Conklin extension is starting to become a hindrance because – well, I got hurt last year, and now you've got Dewan Jones. You're not quite sure what you're going to do at your tackle spot, all this kind of stuff. You've got decisions on the next round for Miles Garrett as an extension. You've got all these decisions to make, and I think some people – listen, the Browns are at a point where the number one thing you have to do really well are determine who are your core guys, and even from your secondary guys, the guys like Mo Hurst who – are kind of coming off a great season but don't have a long-term track record, good organizations do a really good job of who you keep and who you let walk in free agency. And it's never going to be 100%. There's going to be like uh, the, the Ravens are actually pretty good at this. The Ravens also let Matt Judon go in free agency three or four years ago to New England. He's been one of the best edge rushers in football since. He's pretty good before that, but like he's taken his, his game to another level in New England. So like that mostly is where the Browns are. It doesn't mean Deshaun Watson, uh, when he was on the uh, the Lockerverse podcast, doesn't mean he's above recruiting. I know you were down the road with family ties. We want to pass the ball. That's what we're going to do. We're going to pass it a lot. You know what I'm saying? To Chubb and Ford. He ain't got to leave the state. He ain't got to leave the state. And we're going to take good care of you. The Cleveland fans are going to love you. They're going to love you to death. And we got the Clemson ties. We didn't get to play with each other, but this is our opportunity. So, like, man, come on over to the land, man. <laughs> and that was to uh, Bengals wide receiver, soon-to-be free agent, uh, T. Higgins. And, okay, one, T. Higgins is an incredible wide receiver. So if the Browns were in the running for T. Higgins this offseason, I'd be very happy because T. Higgins is one of the more underrated wide receivers in the NFL. Like, I think he's a legitimate number one receiver. He's just played number two receiver because of Jamar Chase. Two, it would really piss off Joe Burrow. And I can't tell you, we are at the part of this, this Browns run here where if you can do things that make your team considerably better and upset a rival, I am all on board. I really am. Now, I don't think people realize how much, because it because this is where we get into the fantasy football side of things, T. Higgins is going to cost what can only be described as a metric F-ton. Like, it is going to cost, if you guys haven't paid attention, we haven't really had a reason to pay attention to the wide receiver market and free agency the last couple of years. One, because it's there haven't been a lot of really good wide receivers to hit the open market. Two, because those guys get overpaid, but we're not paying attention to the Jacoby Myers, right? Uh, T. Higgins probably will get, and I, this is honestly kind of a soft way for me to say this, it's not a, like a bold take. T. Higgins is going to get $20 million a year, probably at least. And you've got a team like uh, Carolina that has cap space and has a massive need at wide receiver. Doesn't mean T. Higgins wants to go there. I was going to say, it's going to be a ferocious market for wide receivers. But 
the thing that I think I've heard people react to the most is Deshaun saying, we're going to pass the ball. And he also made sure to throw in the name Nick Chubb there because he realized that when you say, hey, we're going to pass the ball, you can upset some people. Um, people? I if you If that comment struck you poorly, I don't know what you were expecting. The Browns going forward, it, listen, at some point, guys, it, it won't be Nick Chubb's team anymore. And whether that's Nick Chubb gets older and decides to retire, whether that's Nick Chubb's injuries become a problem, whether that is Nick Chubb and, uh, and the Cleveland Browns can't agree on some sort of commensurate value that they that at some point, whether it's this offseason or two offseasons from now, decide to part ways. Even with all that being said, no matter how it happens, for the Browns to be the absolute epitome of what you want them to be, it's got to become Deshaun's offense. And that's going to make a lot of us uncomfortable because we like Nick Chubb. No, no, no. We love Nick Chubb. And I think the Browns love Nick Chubb, by the way. it's not They're not thinking Nick Chubb or Deshaun Watson. It's how That's more of a fan thought. But at some point, even if Nick Chubb's still on the roster, this offense has to do everything it can to bring the most out of Deshaun Watson. And so when it comes to where this offense is going, guys, they're going to pass the ball a lot more. If Deshaun's shoulder is up for it, they're going to try and spread the ball around. They're going to try and throw the ball down the field. They're going to try and be everything they were with Joe Flacco, I think, is what they want to be with Deshaun. They just need to get him healthy, and they need to they need to come up with a scheme that unlocks that ability of Deshaun. So we're going to pass the ball. Honestly, that's something that you hate to hear because of the fears we have about losing Nick Chubb or Nick Chubb playing for somebody else. That's the kind of thing you hate in January. Once you actually see it on the field in uh, September, you don't hate it. If the Browns have a sexy passing offense in September, we're all going to be pretty excited. Or if it doesn't happen until November, it, we're going to be excited whenever it does happen. But I'm just curious whether you guys think Deshaun needs a number one wide receiver. Because I, I am a little torn on this. One, I don't think they're going to be in the running for T. Higgins. I, or rather, I don't think they'd be the first choice. That like something, ha- something really, the circumstances have to conspire for T. Higgins to be a Browns receiver next year. He is one of one. He is an elite wide receiver that's going to be likely not franchise tagged by Cincinnati. And any time, like, listen, guys, when, when like good number two wide receivers hit the open market, they get overpaid. When legit number one wide receivers hit the open market, overpaid really isn't even the beginning of like what you can call what's going to happen. So I don't expect the Browns to be in the bid like in a bidding war for any player because that just doesn't benefit the Browns. The Browns probably have to be more selective. If they're going to add another wide receiver, I would imagine it would be whoever this year's version of um New Hopkins is. I don't expect Philadelphia to trade uh AJ Brown because AJ Brown and Nick Sirianni are at each other's throats, but he's so good, I expect them to keep him. Also, with that being said, He's probably too expensive for you because you don't have a uh, first-round pick this year. So, like, you're going to have to find a guy that's a little bit older that has a contract that makes it tough for other teams to take him on. Uh, you're going to have another Amari on your hands. I will say, I think the toughest thing here is 
if you were going to try and find A.T. Higgins this offseason, it might mean you have to make a decision before you want it on Amari Cooper. I can't see a scenario in which you go out and get a number one wide receiver unless it's the draft with your 54th pick, the first pick you have, which is in the second round, late second round, unless you get lucky with that guy. And the Browns have not had luck. David Bell has had some moments with Joe Flacco down the stretch. I don't know you can count on him next year. Cedric Tillman flashed a couple times. He also made some really glaring mistakes, which, which kind of enhanced Joe Flacco's interception numbers, even though Joe didn't really need any help with that. Um, Elijah Moore, to this point, does not look like the guy you hoped he would be. So I don't know if the Browns are having trouble scouting receivers if they just haven't had the right guy fall to them, right? Because that does matter. Like in the draft, sometimes a team comes up right before you in the draft and takes the player you wanted. It would feel different if they took Jalen Hyatt, who went one pick before you instead of Cedric Tillman. I think, I think though, if you're going to go find a number one receiver, I don't expect them to. But if they were, it probably means Amari isn't here next year. And that that starts to be a scenario where I might be less comfortable with. We were just talking about uh, Deshaun Watson. Uh, I think it was a little tongue-in-cheek. I think it was being playful. But recruiting um, T. Higgins, the Bengals wide receiver, on his Lockerverse podcast with, with Quincy Avery. Who does kind of bug me on that podcast? Yeah, I don't know who needs to hear that. Maybe it's Quincy. It just feels a little bit like a hanger on talking with a guy, like a cool guy. Like maybe maybe I'm just reliving what it was like to watch people fawn all over athletes most of my life. A little uncomfortable. Less of a peer-to-peer and more of a uh, peer to a weird guy that really just wants to be uh, pseudo-famous because of a correlation or proximity to a quarterback. But I digress. Um and and Mac actually looked up in the break. Spot track has it uh has T. Higgins going for eighteen point six million dollars per year. That's his value according to Spot Track over four years. That's a lot of money. And I think I will I, I actually think this is the year where it might make sense for the Browns to go big game hunting. And I've kind of thrown out this theory previously. But like a year ago, the Browns had so many gaping holes on this roster. They needed 75% of the defensive line replaced. They needed multiple safeties. They needed multiple help, uh, multiple wide receivers. And, you know, even though, I mean, and if you look at it, they went draft pick and either free agent or trade at either their biggest positions, either defensive tackle, uh, uh, defensive end, edge rusher, and wide receiver. So I would expect the Browns to be pretty aggressive in whatever they feel like the need is. I disagree that every, uh, there's been a lot of talk that the Browns need a safety. I think the safeties did struggle in the playoff game, but I think that was because Delpit didn't play and because Juan Thornhill hadn't played in X amount of time. I think between Delpit, Thornhill, uh, Hickman, and Bell, you add another young player, and I think you have a really nice – and maybe even bring back Rodney McLeod or Deron Harmon. I think you've got enough guys to be a really good safety group. But I digress. So I don't think that's the biggest need. I will say, though, like I think the Browns need another starting wide receiver. That's not the same thing as saying they need a number one receiver. And it's mostly because I think the only way you're getting a true number one wide receiver right now is if 
somebody either does something stupid, like when the Texans traded DeAndre Hopkins for a second-round pick and a, a busted-up running back in David Johnson back in, what was that, 2019? It's it's that, or you got to draft him. I, I just think, like, it, and I think from the Browns' priorities, I think you'd rather have two or three really nice weapons around Deshaun than, than putting it all into one wide receiver. It'd be different if you had a number one pick this year. It'd be different if your salary cap wasn't effectively year to year where every year you're trying to clear out money and throw into the future. But because you have a issue with the cap, which doesn't really matter, it's just kicking the can down the road, in fairness, but because you have to move things around every year to make that happen, and you don't have number one picks the last couple of years, I think that's where you got to choose. I don't think number one wide receiver is the thing you should go looking at, uh, go looking for just because of the cost. I'd rather, like if the, and uh, listen, I think this offseason, because you, you your roster is in a better spot, you know, safety was an absolute question mark last year. I don't think it is anymore. You still have three potential number one corners, even though everybody's down on Newsom for, and, and MJ for the way they played in that, that uh, playoff game. I still think they're really good at football. Yeah, you probably do need a starting middle linebacker if Anthony Walker Jr. isn't coming back. But the price on the open market, you can – I mean, Anthony Walker was a guy that had started in Indy you found in free agency like three weeks in. You can find a good starting linebacker there. I would say you could use another edge rusher, but you might be able to find the next Sidarius Smith. Um, I think you need a wide receiver. My point is, like, you you have needs, but it's not as glaring needs where it's you need depth and you need frontline talent. And I think that might lead this to be the year where you can go out and try and fix one big free agent instead of 10 good free agents. And I think the logical place isn't at wide receiver where there's just a dearth of true number ones or even number twos that hit the open market. I, I just I, I just don't I, – it's just not likely. You don't have the, the collateral to trade for them. Those guys don't hit the market. You know who surprisingly does hit the market almost every year? It's guys like Zedaria Smith or guys who can qualify to be a, a maybe a number one edge rusher or number one pass rusher up the middle on other teams. I think that's where the focus should be. I, to, to me, if you can get me either a impact starting defensive lineman or an impact middle linebacker, which I don't know is their priority, that to me is where the big ticket purchase should come. If you're going to do it, and this year feels more likely than last year where just you had so many different spots to fill. And yeah, you've got a lot of free agents going into this offseason. Well, that's because you had you played like 100 guys this year. You should have 30 free agents or 20 free agents if you ended up having to, to sign a bunch of guys like the Joe Flaccos, like the midseason, uh, uh, you know, Deron Harmon's, guys like that. But I think you're going to be able to be a little bit more selective and maybe if you open up enough cap space, try and take a big swing. Give me an edge rusher. Give me a defensive tackle that can get up the middle quickly and take a little more pressure off of Miles Garrett. Give me a impact middle linebacker and then find me a good enough second wide receiver. 216-474-0092. If, if the Browns went big ticket shopping in free agency, this offseason, what position would you want them to focus on? 
Ideally, you could find a number one wide receivers. I think you're going to see with T. Higgins. That's a guy who not everybody – I think he's a number one. I don't think everybody agrees with that in the NFL. He's going to get paid like a number one and then some. Levon, welcome to the show, bud. What you got for us? What's going on? I like the idea of trying to get a receiver. That Cincinnati deal sounds all right. But if you can't get that, um, go in the draft and get you a nice young receiver that's got some height on like 6'5". And as far as our defense, the safeties, make sure you get some height with the safeties. And um, Jarvis Landry will be good. Give him a call to see if he's still available. And that will be great. So, defense, go, go ahead, buddy. And our, um, our running game, Keith Kareem Hunt, and the number 34, you can get some drafts for him. And I think we'll be pretty good. They made some moves. They had to throw somebody under the bus, so they did a lot of fun of some people that you thought that was doing a good job. But, you know, they took the, the, the wrap off um, the head coach, so they had it. Somebody had to get fired for the bad year they had. It was a great super year, but, hey, the Browns would be super good next year when we, Nick Chubb come back. We appreciate you, buddy. I hope Nick Chubb can come back. I I don't know we're going to get to it today. I do have a theory on the Ken Dorsey. Apologies to Lima. I'm not stealing his bet. I do have a theory on what Ken Dorsey means for Nick Chubb or what he could mean for Nick Chubb, and we'll have to get into that later this week. But um, I don't know the Browns are going to be looking for a tall wide receiver. I mean, T. Higgins would classify, by the way, because T. Higgins is a long wide receiver. I think the Browns are just going to look for the most explosive. Like, basically, might be a little reductive. Basically, their next Marquise Goodwin or their next Elijah Moore. I think they knew uh, they know – with Deshaun, they need to get as much vertical speed as they can. And T has that, but I think you can find those kind of guys at a cheaper price than around $18.6 million a year, which could be the going rate for T Higgins. We're talking about the the Ken Dorsey hire. And I will, I will throw out the blanket question for you guys to call in or give us a response at Nick Wilson says on social media. 216-474-0092 if you want to give us a call. Who calls the place? Because in seemingly every report about this hire, the two things that stood out, one, it does not seem like Dorsey's going to be the quarterback's coach, which means either Kevin's still going to do that or they're going to hire a, a second guy to be the quarterback's coach. And I kind of like that. I, I the The whole dual role of offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach. That's a little collegiate for me now. And I know guys like McDaniel has done that, or Josh McDaniels has done that. I know there are coaches that do that. I kind of like splitting those two things up. And I think the last couple of years, I think maybe it was asking a little bit much of Alex Van Pelt to do both roles. This last year, he was more of a quarterbacks coach. I digress. Anyways, so I thought that was interesting. The second thing is nobody's really sure who is going to call plays. And, you know, uh, Daryl Ryder was on the morning show today talking about play calling and whether he would still have Kevin Stefanski call the plays after hiring Ken Dorsey. Here's what he had to say. 
it sounds like you would keep uh, Kevin Stefanski calling the plays. Yeah, I would. And I'll be honest with you, I think that that's the best that he's good at it. I've said it before. I, I don't get the obsession with people needing Kevin Stefanski n- not the call play. Andy Reid's back in the Super Bowl. He calls plays for the Chiefs. Not that big of a deal to me. So there's a few things I actually agree with, Daryl. And if you want to listen to the full uh, interview, you can use the uh, free Odyssey app. Use the rewind function there. Um, I I do think that there is a segment of Browns fans whose obsession specifically with getting Kevin to stop calling the plays is wild to me. I think this year was the ultimate validation that Kevin actually is a good play caller. So this isn't as simple, and so much of this conversation turns into is he a good play caller or not, and I think you're missing the ever-loving point. I When I say... It wouldn't bug me, or it might make sense right now for Kevin to give up the play calling duties. It's less is Kevin good at it. I think Kevin is just fine. I think the question is who fits with Deshaun better? Who has more experience calling an offense that suits Deshaun Watson? Because it's funny, man. Kevin gets a lot of credit, and rightfully so, for having Jacoby Brissett have one of the best years of his career. Not the best, but one of the best. Uh, for the Joe Flacco resurgence this year. He should get a lot of credit for coordinating an offense and play calling an offense that that won with five different style, okay, four different style of quarterbacks and then also played a fifth game with Jeff Driscoll. He should get a lot of credit for that. He also should get credit for having Baker Mayfield have one of his best seasons in the NFL until this year. Actually, Baker's best year until this year. But yet... If we're going to give him credit for those things, we also have to have the conversation about year two of Baker in this situation where Baker had a regression. There was the shoulder injury, but Baker also seemed to struggle with the structure of the offense, specifically things like um, on-schedule throws and things like that kind of opening script. And granted, I, I think the script thing is, it has now, it's officially overblown. Deshaun didn't say he wouldn't want to do it. He said sometimes he thinks it cramps his style. Those are two very different points that I think Deshaun was making. And you get to it, though. I don't know that what Kevin does best is a play caller, and specifically on schedule throws. That's something that is part and parcel with Kevin Stefanski's offense. I don't know that works with an improvisational quarterback. So much of the genius, and and Daryl mentioned Andy Reid, so much of the genius of Andy Reid is that he's won with completely different quarterbacks. And he's conformed. He starts with Donovan Mitchell, and then he goes to Kevin Cobb. And then there's, I believe, at the very end there, a dalliance with Nick Foles. Three, wildly, oh, Michael Vick's in there somewhere too. So four, wildly different quarterbacks. Then he goes to Kansas City from Alex Smith, who might be the most – okay, if we go Donovan, Patrick, and Alex Smith. Alex Smith was the most limited of those three quarterbacks, and they won and had a highly functional offense with Alex Smith, and then you go to a completely opposite quarterback in Mahomes. The RPOs aren't the same as as you had to run with Alex Smith. RPOs was a huge part of what Alex Smith did with – Pat Mahomes, it more mimics a, a, a air raid where you just need a bunch of fast-as-hell guys and then just find a way to buy time for Pat 
They can just make ridiculous plays. That right there, what I just suggested, is more what fits what Deshaun needs. Not necessarily air raid component because that's a little different, but more of a spread philosophy where your job is to get Deshaun Watson options on the field and then let him make the, de- the, the decision in-game. I don't know that fits with what Kevin wants. So this idea of is Kevin a good play caller or is Ken Dorsey a better play caller, honestly, guys, it is. it cannot be quantified. Even if, even like, you know, Kevin has said at points, well, listen, if I, I'll give up play calling if I think it's the right thing to do, or if I think somebody can do it better. I don't know how you quantify who's a better play caller. That's about feel. That's about rhythm. That's about your system and your comfortability in those things. I don't care who's better. Well, okay, I do care who's better. If the difference is an elite play caller and a guy who has no business calling plays. But this comes down to the entirety of this offseason has to be about how can we unlock Deshaun Watson. So it almost doesn't matter to me whether Kevin calls the plays or Ken. What matters to me is whoever can best unlock Deshaun as a play caller is the guy that ends up calling plays. Now, the simplest thing would be to do because here's the thing. We also, the other part of this, we always know if it's not working halfway through the year, you can go ahead and you can pull play calling duties or you can give them to somebody else. So I think it would make sense if you went into this saying, listen, Kevin's going to call the plays to start. Ken is going to be in the conversation every single situation. And then if the offense either falters with Kevin or If Kevin just decides Ken Dorsey's ready, at some point we're going to hand that off mid-year. That makes a lot of sense. Now, if you go into thinking, well, we're going to give Ken a chance and we'll see how it works out, well, you might have to neuter your offensive coordinator halfway through the year, which is going to be a rough look. But this, this just focusing on whether Kevin Stefanski is the play caller or not, I do think we've hit a critical mass of asking the wrong questions. Because here's the here's the one thing I do know. Absolute, like, let's just start at the bare brass tax minimum. Kevin Stefanski will never not be involved in the offense. So whether that's the play calling, Kevin's going to have his, is going to be listening and Kevin will make suggestions, as is the prerogative of every offensive head coach. And Honestly, almost every head coach has a conversation about the play calling at some point, even if somebody else makes the actual calls. Two, even if Kevin isn't calling every single play or scripting out the first 15 or whatever, Kevin is going to have a say about what the offense does on any given week. He might not physically draw up the game plan, but he will be involved in that. That was the whole point of hiring Jim Schwartz as the defensive head coach, is it gave you the opportunity to look at this and say, all right, he's got the defense. I can now focus on getting the most out of the offense. In a way, whether he calls plays or not, I mean, it matters. It does. But it matters less who's better at it or all that other kind of stuff. And it matters that Kevin Stefanski just stays as involved as he needs to be to help the offense be the best version of himself. 216-474-0092. Who calls the plays? And and honestly, how much of a difference do you see Kevin Stefanski in this offense with him as the play caller 
and Ken Dorsey. I, I'll and I'll just to to start where we or go back to where we began. I don't know definitively. Kevin Stefanski can't call the plays for Deshaun. I don't know definitively. I know that I've seen it the last two years, and it's looked uneven, and it's looked unnatural at points, and that's something that has to be addressed. Whatever caused the clunkiness and the discomfort for Deshaun on the field, which mitigated his ridiculous playmaking ability, even if this year's it was more energy or, and more um, injuries than anything, you need to find whatever that thing is that is causing that lack of where it doesn't look natural, and you need to uh, obliterate it. Let's go with Calvin. Welcome to the show, Calvin. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Hey, Nick, I don't disagree with anything you just said, but but you left out one part of the equation. Our home run hitter here in Cleveland, his name is Mr. Chubb. I think it's all about finding a coordinator who can figure out how to mix the run with the pass or the pass with the run. We don't have a Chase. We don't have a Kelsey. We have Mr. Chubb. And Far too many times you see these offensive coordinators. I, I got to prove I can I can run the air raid. I got to prove we can throw the ball 25 times. We have to figure out a way to get the ball to Mr. Chubb and see if we can win that way. That's just my take. Thanks, guys. Calvin, appreciate you. Um, I would respond to the Mr. Chubb part of this, but I am not mature enough to say Mr. Chubb three times in response to what you said, Kelvin. So I will simply let Mr. Chubb lie. Um, Here's the thing. Here's an uncomfortable truth that I think we all have to address with the Browns. It's for this thing to work out. It can't be Nick Chubb's offense anymore. That doesn't mean Nick Chubb can't be a part of the offense. That doesn't mean Nick Chubb can't be a really crucially important player, but if, if there's a point this offseason or next season during the year with him coming off an injury, if there comes a point where you have to choose between maximizing Deshaun and maximizing Nick Chubb, the answer um, or the question answers itself. No team in the NFL will choose an elite running back or maximizing an elite running back over maximizing an elite quarterback. And unfortunately, there are some fit issues with where Nick Chubb works the best, which is out of a, you know, quarterback under the center based offense, a one back system and where Deshaun might excel the best out of, which is either the pistol or out of a shotgun formation where again, he's not turning his back to the offense or to the, to the defense. It's not what Nick Wilson wants. It's not, I don't even know that it's what the Browns truly want, but the, the goal is to maximize Deshaun Watson, which might come at the expense of quote unquote Mr. Chubb. We are talking about the uh, the Browns' new offensive coordinator, and I'm kind of interested in hearing from Ken Dorsey. Like I know I I it's funny. I got to give Lima credit. Lima was way ahead of everyone else in the media about how pointless press conferences were a decade ago. Like Lima used to, I remember I would work on his Saturday shows when he was uh, the host. I'd be the 2020 guy. And Lima would just make fun. Like a good hour of his show would just be making fun of the pointlessness of press conferences. And now everybody has, has hopped on that bandwagon. That said, I would hope that we learn a bit when Ken Dorsey's press conference officially comes on. 
I would hope that uh, – and, and listen, I, I give the, the Browns beat uh, some credit here. I think they're going to ask him some interesting questions. Because, I like, the biggest questions I have is, uh, what style offense are you going to run? How do you feel about, uh, you know, jumbo personnel and two and three tight ends and, and how Deshaun can make the most of that? Like, those are the things that I care most about. But I thought it was interesting. Bob on Twitter saying, I don't get the obsession to get someone else to call plays in the ridiculous calls to fire uh, Stefanski. Those people are miserable human beings who are never happy. I don't get people who think after this year, Kevin should be fired. I really don't. There is a part of me that is curious how much time this year bought Kevin Stefanski. Um, you're in the weird position where when Kevin Stefanski gets a contract extension, you could, depending on whether it's two, three, five years, whatever it could be, you're going to be in an interesting position where for once, Kevin and Deshaun are tied to the Browns in roughly this for the same amount of time. Deshaun will have three years left on his contract, but they'll also do the avoidable uh, their avoidable years thing, which which is part of the ten year plan. So I think that really is interesting. The balancing act of because usually whoever is owed the most money, whoever's tied to the team for longer, is the the entity that has more power. And the NFL is everything you saw. What was the Brian Cox show? It's not billions because I love it. It's a section. That's effectively the NFL. The power dynamics constantly shifting. The And I don't want to say games because it's not always intentional, although it can be and has been in the Browns previously. But that dynamic where power and who yields it and who, who can handle or who has the most of it absolutely does still matter in the NFL. So it'll be interesting to see how long the Browns extend Stefanski for, but understand until they figure out Deshaun, no one will ever be truly safe. Or until they nail post Deshaun, if that ends up, if it ever happens that Deshaun, the shoulder just falls apart again, or Deshaun ends up, it just the relationship doesn't work. Whatever it is, until you until you get premium production out of the Browns quarterback position, no one's truly safe. If right now. You'd just gone uh, 11 and 6, and Deshaun had played as good a football as he did in the aggregate across those five games. Even if you had lost in that first round of the playoffs, Kevin would be safe for three or four years because you would have figured out the most important thing, which is getting Deshaun to play at a high level. And then it becomes well, can you get a playoff win? Can you go to an AFC title game? But right but I'm trying to go like that crazy uh, lady from the plane, but also right now, that's not what the reality is. And so the play calling thing is probably what it doesn't matter the most. What matters the most is what kind of offense does is, is Dorsey going to be empowered to run? How empowered is Dorsey? And part of that is play calling, but this is the first step. And why it's so important is this is the first step in maybe having the most aggressive build around Deshaun that you've had. Last year, okay, you brought back AVP and Kevin Stefanski and AVP and Deshaun, they reworked the offense. And last year, well, you did draft Cedric Tillman with a third-round pick and you traded, you swapped your second-round pick for a third-round pick to get Elijah Moore. 
those were half measures. Signing uh, 157-year-old Marquise Goodwin. Those you, you had half measures at your disposal because of the salary cap stuff and because of your draft limitations. Those things are still in place this year, but you might be more apt to maybe make a bigger swing to make sure that you're doing everything you can say. But that's what this offseason is. Last year was continued. Well, we're going to go with the guy we have as offensive coordinator. We're going to take input from Deshaun, and we're going to slowly build this offense over the first half of the season. And you saw that. The first two games did not look anything like what you were expected. They did not spread the ball out. They ran a bunch of bunch concepts. Some of that was weather in the first game. Some of that was the Steelers are really great at at pass rush. And then you didn't really start to see those spread concepts until the, the third week of the season. And then Deshaun was hurt. And then they came back against Arizona, and you had some more spread concepts. But by and large, you were still teetering between those two things. This year, you cannot teeter. This year, the Browns need to go all in in every conceivable way with Deshaun. And if the Kevin St- or if the Ken Dorsey hiring allows you to do that, then it's a good hire. If it allows you to build an offense that actually brings out and features and highlights Deshaun Watson and makes him your most important and most impactful player, it's a it's a success. But it's funny. I heard Baskin and Phelps today, and I thought Jeff Phelps had an interesting point where he was like, I don't really see Alex Van Pelt is different than Ken Dorsey. They were backup quarterbacks in the NFL. They were kind of somewhat traveled, but not really entrenched coordinators in the NFL. I think AVP had a season of play calling. I think Ken Dorsey has a season and a half. And the difference is, I would say, Ken Dorsey has uh, about two more top five rated offenses as offensive play caller than AVP ever did. But like, I'll be honest, I, I think the AVP concern, which is, is this just a different iteration of the same offensive coordinator you've had, that's a real concern. And so I am hoping that when you hear the press conference, and it's not just that, I mean, you know, that they still have a few more hirings to make, or at least they, they still have to confirm what the staff is going to look like for 2024 on the offensive side of the ball. I'm hoping you hear the right things from Ken Dorsey. But every decision that they make this offseason, guys, is either going to confirm or deny that they're going all in with Deshaun every move that they make on offense and that even starts with the offensive tackles and how you finagle having three starting tackles and like 30 million dollars committed this next year to two different tackles but then how they attack the wide receiver spot what they do if they try and bring in any more tight ends like these are honestly what they do with Nick Chubb I think Nick Chubb's going to be here next year. It makes sense that you're going to be able to, you know, that he is coming off an injury and there's enough of a conversation. Also, there's uh, they're, they're replaying the AFC title game and OBJ was looking very sad and I just laughed a little bit. Sorry. Um, really still enjoying Baltimore losing, by the way, in case you guys missed the beginning of the show. But there is an element to this hire that I've just never really felt with the Browns OC where there is a little bit of we'll see. I think I like the hire. I think it's going to be good. 
I think that one of the reasons people don't like it is perceptionally the guy just got fired and the perception is this isn't the, you know, you don't want to hire a guy that just got fired. The reality is in the NFL that happens all the time and it works out pretty well. Jim Schwartz was fired three years ago as the or retired as the Eagles defensive coordinator. It took him three years to be healthy enough and to get the right chance again. It worked out pretty well for you last year. Ken Dorsey could be a really good hire. Now the Browns have to help make it work. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting, the reaction. If you guys missed it, I laughed a lot in the first segment about Baltimore pain. Um, I just thought it was really funny. Like really genuinely hilarious how Baltimore pulled out all the stops. They had all the big names out there. They had Ed Reed. They had Ray Lewis on the sidelines. They had that uh, that that C-list comedian Stavros something or the other. They had Michael Phelps. They, they had this everything. And the fans were so excited. And by the end of the game, the only thing you could get Baltimore fans to cheer for was like a penalty against the Chiefs. That's how much yesterday took the wind out of the sails of Baltimore fans, which I just personally find hilarious. As a matter of fact, one of my old producers in Charlotte, Ryan, he's a big Baltimore fan. He's from Baltimore. He lives there again. I think he works on the sports station there. And this was a guy who every time the Browns lost, when we worked together, would text me, how you doing there, fella? So I got the unique pleasure of, after the game, tweeting at him and asking him how he was doing. Was it a D move? Yes. Do I care? Not really. All this being said, I think one of the reactions that's been the most interesting and the most telling is people defending Lamar Jackson after yesterday's game. And people have said things like small sample size. People have said things like uh, it wasn't his fault they lost. And there is, or, or honestly, well, now's not the time. And what what a lot of this is, is it's fighting back at the instant reaction of in the instant backlash of the presumptive MVP losing in the second to last game of the season. And I, so some of it's good. Some of it's also just sheer contrarianism. This idea that after the favorited home team with the presumptive MVP going up against the three seed, the, the Chiefs who had seemed to be a bit of a disappointment as compared to expectations for them until yesterday, the idea that we couldn't take a look at Lamar Jackson and we couldn't analyze where he is versus where we think he should be is embarrassing. You know, the best and worst part of sports is that we are constantly evolving, we're constantly evaluating, we're constantly watching, and we're constantly assessing and judging. And because you're doing that in real time, you're never going to be perfect. And there are people who err on the side of ridiculousness. And and they, they go to a level of finality on the conversation about Lamar Jackson or Brock Purdy or anybody else that, it, that it's quickly and easily disproved. But this idea that you can't have a real conversation about Lamar Jackson yesterday and, and things like... Why hasn't he won the big game yet is ridiculous. It really is. And the idea that you can't look at what Brock Purdy did yesterday and said on any other team in the NFL, Brock Purdy is not in the Super Bowl. He's just not. He happens to be in the perfect context. And maybe he has the Eli Manning 
moment where he plays a perfect game in the Super Bowl and he does what I don't think he's going to do, which is he wins a Super Bowl. But it is anybody saying today you can't evaluate Lamar Jackson or you can't you can't hold him up against his contract or his station on the number one team in the AFC is honestly, they're just playing the game. They're just being contrarian. They're just fighting back. You have enough information. Because it's not one game in a vacuum. It is Lamar in playoff games over the time that he's been in Baltimore. And he's got two wins. And honestly, that's two more wins than Deshaun Watson has in the last four years. So I can understand how it might sound like crocodile tears or an advanced version of me making fun of the city of Baltimore for the crocodile tears of losing yesterday. It is not. If every time, listen guys, if let's say Pat Mahomes had lost yesterday and people said, oh, has Pat lost his edge? That is ridiculousness. That is just a heinous overreaction to what likely is a bad game. With Lamar, Lamar was on the number one seed. Lamar was on a team that had played the best football across the last 25 weeks. Lamar was and, and is expected to be the NFL MVP. Lamar had his best offensive season on his best offense, the, the, the offense that had been built best around him maybe ever because people had figured he had been saddled by uh, or, or slowed down by Greg Roman. So the idea that you can't ask whether Lamar is capable or incapable of winning the big game is laughable because right now today, he was more responsible for his team winning every single year, uh, sorry, every single game than Brock Purdy was in every single game. And one of them is in the Super Bowl. And if that is an indictment on the build in Baltimore, then that's also partly an indictment on Lamar. If I'm going to give the guy his flowers, if I'm going to say he's the NFL MVP, that was not an NFL MVP performance. Now, I happen to look at the interception where people wanted OPI called, but in reality, the guy threw into triple coverage and it was a bad throw. I happen to look at that saying, yeah, he was probably pressing a little bit because the rest of the offense wasn't doing enough around him. I'll also say they that, that Todd Munkin set up Lamar to fail because he didn't run the ball. They didn't run the offense that we were used to. Instead, they were just kind of relying on Lamar to make a bunch of plays and hope that was enough, and it wasn't. He made some plays. And admittedly, Zay Flowers' fumble took off one of the best plays of the day off the board. And then there was the other uh, Zay taunting, Zay Flowers taunting, which, uh, of course, took them back and took them from, like, uh, the the uh, the deep red zone into being, I think, at the – I think it was, like, the 20 or 25. But point, point blank, if you're going to give Lamar all the credit when they get the number one seed in the AFC – he deserves blame when he had every conceivable advantage you needed in the game. He has an elite head coach. He has better weapons, honestly, than he has had in a while. He had Mark Andrews back. They did a pretty good job at actually protecting him 
and and slowing down as best you can a absolute Hall of Fame stud in Chris Jones. Yeah, Chris Jones had some moments. Chris Jones also was not consistently the same Chris Jones because they did a hell of a job against him. Yeah, Carl Loftus made some plays. Guys, other teams do make plays against you. The, the Ravens made plays against Mahomes yesterday. But Lamar Jackson was on the number one seed at home with every conceivable advantage and couldn't win the game. They scored seven points. You better be having some real conversations in Baltimore because that is as good as it possibly gets and you got handled at home. If now isn't the time to question whether Lamar can win the big game or not, I don't know when will be. Because I don't know when Baltimore's ever going to have the perfect confluence of everything they had this year. 216-474-0092. You guys, is it, how much of a conversation is it that whether Lamar is capable of winning the big game or not? Jeff, welcome to the show, buddy. What you got for us? Yeah, I don't care how you slicing or dice it. Lamar choked. He became gun-shy. He didn't want to throw the ball. He was making second decisions. He decided to go back to his Louisville days and run first. Lamar choked. Okay? That's just the bottom line, Lamar choked. But I give Lamar credit because he's not even supposed to be a quarterback. He was a glorified running back coming into the NFL. They made him into a quarterback. When he came into the NFL, he didn't even know how to throw a ball. Jeff, is your real name Bill Polian? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, just want to make sure. Yeah. Okay. Now you know what Stefanski. I I think they making decisions uh, pertaining to the uh, output, which was very optimal. Win at home, lose on the road. That's very optimal. That's most coaches, and they made decisions. They making decisions on his output, and it's very optimal. And it's too bad because he's a good coach. Okay, he's a good coach. In his situation, less is more. His, opt- his output was less, and that's more. They think that's bigger than making a decision about him, good coaching. They think his output is something they should make decisions by. Go Browns. All right. I have no idea what the point you're making at the end there. Let's be really honest. I heard output a lot. I think optimal was a word I heard a lot. I, but I don't really understand the point. Now, granted, I did not graduate from Bowling Green. All right, I, just full disclosure. I might just be dumb, but I, I don't know about whatever the hell that last part. Now, the, the first part is if uh, the whole conversation about Lamar shouldn't be a quarterback is one of the dumbest conversations or dumbest conversation points I've ever heard. I, I, think, I think Lamar's stats yesterday were a lot of empty filling. I think he made a lot of plays either early in downs or he made a lot of plays in the middle of the field where it is easy or sorry, the – you know, 50-yard line kind of – I think he made a lot of plays where you should make plays in the NFL. And I don't think he made enough actual winning plays in a shortened field, and that is part of why they lost. But to suggest that now uh, six years in, we don't have enough to say that he is a – or that he shouldn't be a quarterback, I just I, I just don't even know, like, how you watch what you saw yesterday. Are, are, was he limited yesterday? Did he have a good game? Absolutely not. Was he the number one reason they lost? Also, absolutely not. It was every stupid personal foul penalty. It was every uh, mental gaffe. It was the Chiefs that just completely and utterly lulled them in and lured them into every fight 
And, I mean, it was Travis Kelsey being the little brother where Travis Kelsey said something, Roquan Smith hit him, and there's a 15-yard penalty. Baltimore came unglued. But if you are an elite quarterback, and this is where the, this is, this is where the conversation actually begins, you're an MVP-level quarterback, you should be able to help your team rise above. And they didn't. They didn't have composure. That is another strike against Lamar Jackson. That should not be happening at home. Let's go with Tommy. Tommy, welcome to the show, buddy. What you got for us? Thank you, Nick. Nick, he reminds me, Lamar, reminds me of Fran Tarkington, okay? He's running his own play when it's, when, after it's snapped. You know what I'm saying? And I think one of the crucial penalties was Flowers with the taunting. I mean, that was ridiculous. That was a 15-yard penalty, and that hurt them. But anyway, I just think Lamar... Is, is great, but he was he he's a Fran Tarkington. You know what I'm saying? He sort of switches the play a little bit and tries to make his own thing and runs and da 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 da. But um, I I just think it was it was th- that Flowers penalty that really hurt them. Yeah, it's funny. I and thank you for the call. I mean, they were down seven points when Roquan Smith went rogue on the offsides penalty where he committed a personal foul. You could really point to any one of the personal fouls, any one of the – I mean, taunting was one of them, but the, the uh, Travis Jones literally punching Pat Mahomes in the face, you can point to any one of those and said, if you just had one less of those, your chances of winning are exponentially better. That's how poorly Baltimore blew it. Unfortunately, Lamar is – or rather fortunately if you're a Browns fan – Lamar is the face of that franchise, and he has to answer for his part. He made some plays. At least one of those plays was was muted by a dumbass penalty. Yep, then you need to make more plays. It's that simple. That's what we gauge elite quarterbacks or uh, winning quarterbacks against. 216-474-0092. Do you guys think Lamar is incapable of winning the big game? Through six years, he sure seems to be. I don't know what made this pop into my head. I want to get to the JB audio in a minute. Does it help or hurt your opinion of the Ken Dorsey hiring that he used to play quarterback for the Cleveland Browns? And and it, let's just say he didn't play quarterback very well. And I and I I'm I'm always sensitive to this. I'm not a former NFL quarterback, so he is a better quarterback than me. I higher bar, I would say, in Cleveland. But I think it is – I was just thinking back to some of the responses on Ken Dorsey, and I actually think it probably helps that we know in the nebulous – eh, wasn't that great. But we can't really think of too many specific bad moments. Like if they had hired Brandon Whedon, I don't know why they would. We would think of that that infernal flag moment. Like we would just think of that every time we saw that guy. If they saw Brady Quinn, we would think of him in that picture as a little boy with his uh, Browns helmet on and how poorly things went in just any of the times he got on the field. If we if they had hired RG3, we probably would have no pressure, no diamond ourselves into a corner very early on. I think Ken Dorsey walks the sweet spot of familiarity and how did he play? He wasn't that good, right? Actually, I think more people know him from being an average Miami quarterback than they do have any memory, special memory. They they remember Ken Dorsey more from the national title game Dustin played in 
then they really do anything else. Like, I don't know, uh, was, it, was it three games as a Browns quarterback? I digress. Now, Evan Mobley is back tonight. Um, JB gave word about an hour ago that Evan Mobley will be on a 20 to 24 minute minute restriction. And uh, he did just finish speaking up with the media. Or I don't know, speaking up with the media. That's not a real thing. But he did just finish speaking to the media. And he talked uh, about expectations for Mobley tonight. It's difficult, obviously, but, you know, fit in. Use your skill set to fit what the team is doing. And I think his unselfish nature, his ability to defend multiple positions is smooth, right? It's a smooth transition. Obviously, you know, there's going to be some ups and downs for him. Like, you don't play NBA basketball six for six weeks. It's never going to be, you know, seamless. But as far as his contribution to the team, like, we don't expect that to change because of, you know, we want to play selfless basketball. That's Evan Mobley. We want to defend. That's Evan Mobley. So, you know, we don't expect, you know, dramatic changes. Uh, just an opportunity for him to continue to be who he is. I will say that I was uh, – somebody, one of the Cavs beat reporters had tweeted out a, a video of Evan – oh, I think it was Hayden Grove, Cleveland.com. He, he had put out a video at H underscore Grove of uh, Evan Mobley working on his outside shot. It was from the corner, and I was like, well, he's not going to need that tonight. <laughs> like, you know what? I, I think I would – like, you. hey, here's Evan Mobley running the point. Because that might be the only thing. If he was like working on his handle at the top of the key and distributing uh, the basketball, that might be the the next most unlikely thing to happen tonight is Evans just chilling on the baseline in the corner, getting ready for a three-point shot with a ball not coming his way. With nobody guarding him? With nobody guarding him, yeah. Uh, nailing some yeah. three-pointers with nobody guarding you. You know, though, I, d- I did realize the other day, it's funny you say that, because for a long time, people like fat asses like me on the radio have been like, ah, anybody can do that. I was just randomly shooting outside. And again, I've not picked up a basketball in about four months. I have not played competitive basketball in 20 years. And so the amount of unguarded three-point shots that went nowhere near the basket was really embarrassing. So he's doing something I clearly can't do anymore, which is make a wide open three unguarded uh, before before the game. But uh, no, I just think, you know, as I've, as I've started to get ready for Evan to come back and for Darius to come back, I kind of think Evan is the easier guy to work back into the rotation than Darius because the the ball still should be able to move if it's just in Donovan's hand and it's moving out of that. The fact that Evan still doesn't seem to have much of an offensive game uh, out you know outside of five or. 10 feet to the basket is going to be a problem. And there's going to be some natural kind of overlap between Jarrett and Evan that showcases itself at some point over the next few weeks. That's just logical because that's, we've seen it multiple times this year, but just in, so I, I think adding Evan back is less likely to disrupt the rhythm than Darius is when Darius comes back. And that's not Darius is a disruptor. That is Darius I don't think the Cavs at any point have fixed the biggest problem between Darius and Donovan, which is getting the ball out of one or both hands and keeping the basketball moving. I don't expect that to miraculously fix itself with Darius coming off the the jaw injury. But I, I will admit, like, I don't know the Cavs view it this way. I think the Cavs are pretty content to just run out the clock on this season and see what happens in the playoffs. Personally, it drives me crazy. When you have this much talent and 
the team has won a lot, but when you talk about developing, Evans' development has been mostly stunted. There's been some improvement, but offensively, there just hasn't been enough improvement. When you talk about um, how Jarrett tends to disappear or how either big can disappear when they're both in the game together or how you're taking one extra shooter off the uh, off the court and how that, that does stymie the offense a little bit. The fact that that has not resolved itself or gotten better over the last year and a half is confounding. And I have my own working theories on it. I, I've said I think some of this involves JB. There are people in town who don't want to hear that. Like I had uh, 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 one of the Twitter accounts, I can't remember his name, sorry, bud, um, who said, oh, you criticize JB, and he just goes out and becomes the hottest coach in the league. Because he, he beat Orlando and Washington. He beat Washington a couple times. He beat Detroit. Like, I, I, I'm a little, I'm uneasy with where the Cavs are. I hope that they continue, that basically all they needed was to get out of their own way. They just needed to get hot and start winning games. And that maybe you add Evan and Darius back and it's flawless. And you still have questions, but by and large, they can win. They get a top four seed and another crack at the playoffs. I hope, I hope against hope that that is what happens. I don't know it will be, and I think the next two to three weeks are as, as important of a stretch as we've had for the Cavs. I just think it is why, I mean, I think the Cavs' insistence on not talking Turkey with any of their core four players, my greatest fear is it's going to bite you in the butt. You can't really be stubborn you can't really ignore the circumstances if you're in Cleveland. Miami has. Miami, they refused to pay top flight for Donovan two years ago. They refused to pay top uh, top pay uh, top pay for, um, oh gosh, who is the player this year? Oh, just one of the biggest players. Oh, Dame Lillard. They refused to pay top dollar for him. Sorry about the pun there. Um, Dame Dollar. You guys, it's not great. Um but Miami seems to continue to cling to this idea of we're going to wait for another team around us to do something stupid and give us an elite-level player at below-average prices. You can do that when you're Miami because it just might happen. You can't really do that if you're Cleveland. And so my my thought is the Cavs – Let's see. They've uh, next Thursday is the NBA trade deadline. I think it's February eighth. I don't think the Cavs are going to do anything. I think the most they'll do is maybe turn a second round pick into a better backup big. Now that Tristan Thompson is hurt, I don't. I I don't see them upgrading on Dean Wade. I don't see them upgrading on Karis Levert. That that was one of the suggestions by the Athletic. Well, trade for Alec Burks which would then push Karis LeVert farther down the depth chart, making him even more, uh, I don't say useless because he's a good basketball player, but but m- tougher to get out there on the court and get his, his shots in. So you're going to com- further devalue Karis LeVert. That sounds like the dumbest damn thing in the world. All in the name of not taking care of the natural issues you have on your roster one way or another. So I think the Cavs are going to sit tight at the deadline, uh, barring any, unless Donovan just comes out before the deadline and says, I'm out, which would be the most shocking thing to happen in the NBA. 
And I think they're I think they're rolling big on the playoffs this year. And so with Evan coming back tonight, I'm actually excited to see Evan play. Because he is a really the thing that's frustrating as hell is he's a hell of a basketball player. And I'm excited to see Darius back. Because you know what? He's a hell of a basketball player. But where my uneasiness comes is how quickly can you reintegrate these guys and whether or not the significant issues that they've had, fit issues, right? Not performance issues, but fit issues, whether they overtake this team down the stretch. I hope they don't. I hope that the first 20 games of this year, 25 games of this year, were the anomaly. And I think these guys have played well enough together. I think you should be able to kind of throw together a run here and at least at least do something interesting in the playoffs, right? Even if that just means being competitive in a first-round series. I'll take that at this moment. But we're going to go from, if, if let's say they do come back and there's trouble reintegrating one or both guys, we're going to go from happy, hunky-dory, all is good with the Cavs to Cavs panic really quick. Because I think there's a fair amount of us who understand what they've done is awesome. They've been able to win because the ball ain't sticking and because Donovan is the point man in this offense and just putting up ridiculous numbers. And his usage rates are astronomical. They've been able to win because you've been able to play th- three shooters alongside Jared Allen, and Jared's been able to man the middle, which is, and you've been able to shoot 43s a game at 42% or at 38%. I don't know you're going to be able to do that when these guys come back. With these guys coming back, you might have to fundamentally, from matchup to matchup, change the way you win. So I'm incredibly excited to watch Evan Mobley. Incredibly excited to watch Darius come back, see where they are, see how ready they are to be the guys that they've been the last couple of years. I also need them to continue this run of basketball as they add these guys back in. Because the Cavs might not be willing to panic. I don't know you can say the same thing for all Cavs fans. I don't know you can say that if they hit a a rough point here or if the offense slows down and all of a sudden the three-point shots you're getting are not as good of three-point shots, they are the low-percentage three-point shots, they're the ugly ducks, they're the forced three-point shots, I don't know Cavs fans. Cavs fans who the last two weeks have been telling me I'm an idiot for having questions, concerns, qualms with this team. I think they're going to flip-flop right back to concern if this team cannot continue the momentum they have now. Even as it is, you know, weirdest take that I saw, or not weirdest take, weirdest stat that I saw, they're 9-1 in their last 10 games. And somehow they've gone from being the four seed to the five seed. Now, that doesn't really matter. Like, the, the seeding doesn't really matter this time of year. But it's just wild that you can win 900% of your – sorry, 90% of your games in a 10-game stretch, and you fall one place in the playoff spot. Everything we thought the East was going to be last year, I think the East is this year. I think the East is really good.